is the Comic Critique Podcast, Episode 2. Hey, so welcome to uh, our second podcast. Uh, the Comic Critique crew is here. Uh, I'm Alex Headley, and Philip Gibson's here with me. Hi. Um, so today we're just going to kind of talk a little bit about, uh, not ESPN, <laughs> uh, Phil's phone going off, um, talk a little bit about ourselves, um, and then kind of talk about some stuff that's coming up in comics, uh, and talk a little more in depth about Marvel now that we're, now that we've seen some of the stuff coming out of it. But for you DC fans, fear not, we will be talking about plenty of DC too, <coughs> Yeah, yeah, I would, we missed most of the DC stuff last time, but um, kind of we're gonna, I think we're gonna have kind of a regular feature with these podcasts, just kind of talking about current events and comics. All three, uh, uh, all three big companies right now included Marvel, DC, and Image. Um, so we'll, we'll definitely be hitting some beats from those yeah. as well. But before we get to any of that, we would like to shamelessly self-promote. Our website, which, I mean, it's done pretty well in the first month. Um, we had a blog up at, what's the address? Uh, comiccritique.wordpress.com. It's actually comiccritiqueblog.wordpress.com. There is a comiccritique.wordpress.com, but that is a far inferior blog. Yes, in- indeed. Um, but in case you get confused by us saying two different things, there will also be a link here on the that you can click and take you to the right spot. Yeah, way to way to uh, box that up, Alex. Yeah, I only look at the logo every day. Yeah, you think I know it? Um, but you can also go check us out on Facebook and sign up there. Uh, get all our all our links directly on your Facebook page. Um, just do a Facebook search for Comic Critique Blog. You'll pop right up. Uh, you, there you can you'll be able to find links to all every article we've ever done. Links to all of our podcasts, both on Podbean streaming and on iTunes itself, uh, and then you know anything and everything between in between. Yeah. And what kind of content, Alex, are people going to find when they go to comiccritiqueblog.wordpress.com? <laughs> um, so, if for those of you who haven't visited the site yet, uh, we put up weekly comic book reviews, just kind of going through our respective pull lists. Um, for me, that includes a lot of the New Fifty Two and four or five Marvel Now books. Uh, Phil's is a little smaller, um, but it includes mostly the Marvel books I'm not getting. The good ones. <laughs> um, so in addition to that, we try to put conduct, content up every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So you can check out um, gaming previews for like HeroClix or other comic book related games or just kind of our thoughts on uh, big news in the industry. Um or where we want to see comics go, or take a look at ongoing series that you guys should take it, check out. We try to have content up for you three times a week, so there's plenty of stuff to catch up on. Yeah, and you can also give us comments on any stories there. You can uh, keep up with the podcast. It's not very hard now. There's only one episode up there, <laughs> soon to be two. Um, you can also find our contact information, our email, which is comiccritiqueblog at gmail.com. Um, and you can get in touch with us there. Uh, and we love to hear back from you. We'd love to hear what you want to hear from the podcast, what kind of articles you'd like to see up on the uh, website, 
Um, do you think our reviews are terrible and stupid and you wish we would just die a fiery death? <laughs> um, don't leave that because, frankly, I don't care if that's your opinion. <laughs> but if you have glowing, wonderful things to say or slightly constructive, critical things slightly to say. Slightly constructive. We would, we would be more than happy to hear from yeah, you. Yeah, or even just uh, share your own reviews and thoughts on uh, what's going on, either on topic or completely off topic. We'd love to have yeah. uh, have you guys chatting on our site. Yeah, and who knows, if you uh, give us something really good, we might just steal it and put it up on the website. <laughs> or um, Just kidding, of course. We're, we'll give you credit and put, you, put it on the podcast, post on the website. Um, so we'd love to hear back from you. Absolutely. So uh, check us out. Several ways to get in touch with us. Um, and if, if enough, uh, <coughs> we can get up on Google+. Plus. We can get up on Twitter. Give you guys even more ways to get in touch with us and interact. Um, so there, that's it for our shameless plug. Um, so I guess we'll talk a little bit now what's going on in comics. Marvel now is rolling along. Absolutely. Uh, and we'll talk about more of that in just a second. Um, but DC's also got some big stuff coming up next. What kind of big stuff, Alex? <laughs> Your radio voice is killing me. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so, a couple, a couple, Death of the Family still rolling along in the Batman books. Uh, the Joker's big grand return to comics after uh, he got his face cut off in Detective Comics number one. Uh, Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo, and even even the the other the other Bat books are really knocking it out of the park. This is the most terrifying Joker we've seen in years. Um, and the, the each issue is just dripping with atmosphere and tension, and it's just fantastic. Um, Greg Capullo is doing fantastic work on, on the main Batman book, along with Scott Snyder. What else is going on in the DC Universe? I don't well, know. I mean, I have that question, honestly, because I pretty much rely on Alex for all things DC. Yeah. So, yeah, um, he tells me what to read, and then I read it, and 90% of the time, what he says is good is good. <laughs> What's the 10%? Um, I don't know. I'm just, I just think I'm just, I think I'm just, I think I'm just leaving the margin of error there. Gotcha. Um, if I say 100%, and then you give me one out of 10 books, and it's just <laughs> bad, then I can rely back, fall back on that number. I'm a Absolutely. stats guy. Absolutely. Well, I pr- appreciate that. Um, so yeah, I, I'm I'm the big DC fan of the two. Phil's more of a Marvel X Men kind of guy. Um, but th- another event that they're wrapping up for two other events really going on is Throne of Atlantis. It's kind of a Justice League uh, slash Aquaman crossover coming up. Bet you never saw that coming two yeah. years ago. <laughs> well, Jeff Johns has taken both of those books and made them you know must reads in the DC universe. Even if the first Justice League arc was a little wonky and maybe a little. Uh, not great. The current current run has been much improved, uh, and Aquaman has just been one of the standout knockout successes of the New Fifty Two. It's been in the top ten selling issues multiple months. Um, everybody thinks Aquaman is cool now because uh, he really is. So, Throne of Atlantis sees uh, his uh, Aquaman's brother Orm attacking the surface, trying to reclaim it for Atlantis, uh, and the Justice League and Aquaman kind of squaring off against them. That event also promises to kind of be the uh, starting point for the Justice League of America book launching in February. Uh, it's another Jeff Johns book. Man's everywhere over at DC since he's you know kind of the editor. Um, and that sees Martian Manhunter finally getting some more publicity. I butchered his name just. You almost said Martian Manhunter. <laughs> Not really sure what that is, but a uh, big fan of the character and I enjoyed his stuff in Stormwatch, but. Uh, I'm more interested to see him as the headlining over here. And that, that team's going to have some real oddballs in it. 
Martian Manhunter, Steve Trevor kind of putting the thing together, Catwoman, Vibe, Katana, Green Arrow, the new Green Lantern, Hawkman, and Stargirl. Yep. So if you want to be introduced to a lot of stuff, that would be one of the books to pick up. So what's going on with the what's going on with this vibe guy? Because um, <laughs> vibe is you know new fifty two. You think these are going to be the fifty two best books DC could possibly put in print, and then you hear about vibe. Yeah, so you know I have no idea why vibe has an ongoing series coming up, and yet Cyborg, who's supposed to be you know this supposed right. to be his He's time, central figure in JLA doesn't or have not JLA but Justice League and the whole thing. You know he was the big key point in Flashpoint too. Then you know the editors came out and they said this is Cyborg's yeah. year, and I just wonder sometimes if that's like DC canon that like rule one is Cyborg shall not have a solo <laughs> book. Well, you know he's kind of taken it. This just kind of solidifies that he's the new Martian Manhunter. The Martian Manhunter has always been a like the glue that held the Justice League together. Now that cyborg man can't get any respect in the solo world, uh, which is a shame because I really think the character is one of the more interesting aspects of the Justice League books. Um, but yeah, Vibe, um, they're promising to change them up. In case you didn't know, Vibe was a uh, breakdancing inspired uh, Latino character from the Justice League Detroit era. An awful, awful sounding idea. Uh, There's nothing good about the idea. Um, right. He's kind of like the dazzler of the DC yeah. universe. Yeah, and, and you, there, there are these characters in comics that try to hit a trend and right. milk it for all it's worth. Dazzler was disco, Vibe was the break dancing, uh, and then of course there was the whole 90s where everything was just guns, guns, guns. But uh, oh, they're, they're kind of changing it. Well, yeah, but that's still, I mean, it's comics. Uh, but that's changing up. His powers are still the same. He vibrates, as you can imagine, and can send out kind of shockwaves. I know Vibe vibrates. It's awful. Uh, but they've changed him up a little bit here in a way that's actually fairly interesting and should make him important, even if he's still boring and lame. Um, now his powers are apocalyptic in nature. So uh, the Vibe... Oh, apocalyptic vibrations. The apocalyptic <laughs> vibrations. Dark sides. Uh, feel the love. <laughs> but um, the like the series is going to focus on these uh, incursions, boom tube incursions that are coming in back to Earth. There's boom tube vibes. There's nothing good to say here. And but for some reason, um, Vibe is the only person that can sense them coming and fight back and close these like gates to you know apocalypse, which is basically a plan to tell. Um, so, if nothing else, it's exciting that maybe we can see a better, more fleshed out, more interesting Dark Side coming back to the DCU after his disappointing appearance in Justice League. Maybe uh, Vibe's just a red herring, and Dark Side's gonna take over. Something fun it'll will be happen. Like a, it'll sure. be like Final Crisis, except with Vibe. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jeff Johns is launching the series, and then another writer's taking over after him. Um, Jeff Johns has said that, you know, making Vibe cool will be, like, his biggest challenge ever. Yeah, that's And he did it with Aquaman, so... Who's to say? Who knows what will happen. Um, another, a couple other new books coming out. Katana's also getting her own series. Uh, much more interesting character than Vibe. And who's Katana for those of us who are not DC... Well, that's a little uh, more... Knowledgeable people. Yeah, well, currently she she's in the Birds of Prey series, okay. um, kind of spinning out of uh, New Fifty Two, and um, we don't know as much about her as we used to. She was a prominent figure in Batman and the Outsiders, uh, and even some iterations of the Justice League. 
um, kind of has a magical sword that can like it's called the soul taker uh, and so it can cut your soul instead of just your body um, interesting character I honestly don't know much about her I did not follow the outsiders uh, before the new 52 and we don't have a outsiders book now but she was interesting in Birds of Prey her interaction with Black Canary and Starling and the others was fun she's a little more serious character um, but hopefully she's going to have some supporting cast to keep it from being too gritty, grimy, and ego emo-y. But it looks like an interesting, interesting book. Um, and then of course, Constantine is being relaunched in the new DC series, um, New Fifty Two, and Hellblazer is ending. Not a Vertigo. Not uh, Vertigo. Vertigo is losing books left well, and right. Well, but I mean, this is, I mean, but it's a natural transition to give Constantine a solo book. Justice League Dark has done really well. Well, it all comes back to what I think the New Fifty Two is focusing on, especially leading into their first big, big event next sometime this year, probably by summer, Trinity War, and the DC. The New Fifty Two is very much a magical place. Um, every you know, magic is very, very, very prominent. Right. That's especially evident in the Shazam backup series and Justice League. Justice League Dark is, you know, as a big vein. They're putting big writers on it. Jeff Lemire's doing it now. And Constantine especially is everywhere. He, you know, he made several appearances in Zero Issues that were not his. Uh, he kind of spawned the whole Amethyst sort of sorcery thing. He's leading the Justice League Dark. Um, there's some prophecy going on in that book that he could end the world. Um, they, they've really pushed in the magic side of the DCU in the same way that the super science, like Hank Pym, Iron Man, and so on, right. is pushed in the Marvel Universe. So it only makes sense. It's time for Constantine to get his own um, DC proper book. Right. So, I, you know, I like that he, he's the magic has become a more prominent thing. I really in, have enjoyed all of those books so far. I think the DC Dark line has been the most successful with uh, Animal Man and Swamp Thing kind of being the flagship titles there. Um, but, you know, Hellblazer's ending. It was one of the m- highest-numbered comics around, and it seems like high-numbered comics are it's, it's not nearing cool. extinction. <laughs> you got to get rid of them. So it's ending at two ninety nine. Uh, no 300. I, well, I, I, don't quote me on that. It might get a 300. But uh, they're ending it right at that, no- that big anniversary, uh, relaunching it in the New 52 as a number one. Okay. Um, All right, enough about you know me talking about DC. Let's uh, <laughs> get you in on here. Well, there, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in Marvel. I think, and um, and we'll talk more about this as we get into Marvel reviews, and we'll do previews after that. But Marvel now is, by all accounts, done really well out of the gate. Um, you know, the creative teams have been just phenomenal. Yeah, and that, that's really what Marvel now seems to be about right it they are there it's almost like their way of kind of meeting the image creator driven idea um and taking that into the mainstream as much as possible and i think both companies have responded to images success in the right. last few years very well dc has been very creator driven as well you know uh we'll have a blog post about this later but, you know, the the appeal of the new Batman book wasn't just that it's a new Batman book, but that Scott Snyder was doing it. Yeah. Or that Jeff Johns was the guy doing Aquaman. Or as the Marvel side, you've got Bendis, who's coming off of Avengers and being given <coughs> a whole new sandbox with the X-Men to just go nuts in, which he's done. Yeah. And I'm increasingly being becoming sold on that. 
Um, Alex tends to be a little bit more reserved than Bendis, and I even am. No, I've very much enjoyed uh, all three issues. So we've had three issues in two we've months. We've had three issues in less than two months. Less it's than two, really yeah. only been a month, almost barely. Um, you know, and then Uncanny is hitting sometime in the next year and really threatening to take another huge chunk out of my wallet. <laughs> um, but you know, it's all, it's been all about shaking up the creative teams. Whereas the DC New Fifty Two is really about shaking up the entire DC universe, right. shaking up the characters, taking them in new directions. It wasn't necessarily about shaking up the team. Scott Snyder stayed with Batman. Yeah. He'd been Jeff, doing detective. Jeff, right. Jeff Johns kind of went in the very predicted direction he's going, where he had kind of reintroduced well, Aquaman well, in the he's universe. he's the Bendis of Right. But he had, he had reintroduced Aquaman in the universe. He took out, he was taking over the Aquaman um, universe, the Aquaman book, yeah. um, sticking with Green Lantern. So while there's been a lot of character shakeup, there wasn't necessarily a lot of creative team shakeup. Yeah, but I do think both companies have responded and really given the creators a little bit right. more free reign. Right. And while we've seen that a little bit in the New Fifty Two, especially in some of the the Edge books and the Dark books, like I mentioned before, who who would have thought Demon Knights would ever be right. a thing? Right. Uh, and it's a fantastic title. Marvel now is even going even farther. I think really with the creative team shakeup. I mean, well, I mean, they're not messing with continuity that much. They're, right. they're taking the existing universe and being very apathetic to the history. Yeah, which I don't think is a bad thing. No, I am not. This may get me in some trouble with some more more other comics fans. Well, I am not a stickler for continuity. Not knowing how Batman had five Robins in five years, right, does not bother me. Right, story and character. I think we established that in in podcast one and and. That's been a pretty consistent theme in our reviews, that story and character is where it's at. And if you have to bend a few rules or mess with somebody's powers a little bit or maybe give break continuity, I don't care that much. Unless, As long as you're not breaking a character in half and just making them do things that it would never make sense for them to do. Well, it's taking characters and putting them in new situations, and Marvel now right. is really doing that. Yeah, and I think what, what Marvel has essentially done with its creators is they've given them – a challenge to make everything feel new, mm-hmm. make everything feel um, fresh, and do something with characters that hasn't been done before. And I think that actually not doing a reboot was a really good move, because with a reboot, there's that kind of threat that you could kind of re- retread a lot of old ground. Yeah. We're seeing that to some extent with Flash, to me, where... Barry Allen's the only Flash again, and he's learning his powers to a certain extent. And we're kind of relearning the rogues gallery. And some of the continuity's still there, and some of it's not. But I think that's something. The threat with the reboot is that you can kind of re-origin your characters. Well, and and I, Marvel's trying to avoid that, I think. Yeah. Um, I yeah. think that's why Iron Man has been not as well received, is because... You know, well, if, if there's any book that, to me, that stands out as not meeting the expectation of Marvel now, unfortunately, it's Iron Man. Yeah. The first couple issues have felt very much like Matt Fraction's run on Iron Man, well, which was great. Well, it's the same story. But, I mean, there's extremist callbacks. There's the Five Nightmares callbacks. Right. It feels that, – that book does feel yeah, like a it's like we're doing extremist. You know, Redux Part Three because the movie's doing it. Because the movie's doing it, like. and that's that's all well and good, but I don't think that's really in the spirit. 
I'm, and we'll talk about this more when we get to reviews, but things like the Incredible Hulk, not Incredible Hulk, it is now yeah, Indestructible Hulk. Yeah, Wade, Mark Wade loves the, the I-N in front of yeah. the word. Insufferable and, and incorruptible. Uh, that, that's his thing. But it's, <laughs> it's just re- but what they're doing with books like that is they are saying, you know, there are, there are avenues we've never explored with these characters. Go explore them. Yeah. And, and it doesn't even feel like an editorial mandate. It feels like the the you know no, the writers kind of got to pick what they wanted to do, whether that's true or not. Right. They successfully made it feel that way. Yeah. Which is what matters. Um. So it's you know, and, and we're kind of being very lovey-dovey with Marvel now, but it's been a very big breath of fresh air to me. Um, well, and if you if you guys remember from our last podcast, I was not as nice to Marvel with the whole Avengers yeah. versus X Men. And I, I'm, I've added what four books to yeah. my pull list from Marvel. But uh, curiosity was a big part of right. it. But um, another part of it was just the creative teams really attracted. Right. Me. And one thing that I think, um, you know, Marvel now has made, um, has made sense of uh, ABX a little bit. Especially I mean, Ned saying in an interview, saying in an interview that you know if I was not going to be picking up X-Men after ABX, we would not have been able to break them in half as much as we did. And so ABX, while some of the story is a little bit disjointed and 12 issues was probably too long, it did accomplish the goal of just messing up the sandbox and creating a very different status quo that, unlike a lot of the other um, events in Marvel's recent history, you know, really opens up options for the creators. You know, Dark Reign, there was definitely an editorial mandate that, oh, we're going to be having villains doing villainy things and being in charge of the universe. You know, heroic age, everybody's going to feel heroic again. With Marvel now, it feels more like, well, things are changed in the status quo, but who knows what all has been messed with. Go have fun. Yeah. You know, mar- mutants are everywhere. That's a big shake in of itself. You know, and that's been, and that's, and I really love what it's done for the X-Men. Um, it's made them less about protecting the 198 mutants that are left over. Everyone's an X-Men by default. And it's really just made the mutants this situation that is neither good nor bad, but just volatile, that the entire universe has to deal with. Yeah. That the world has to deal with. And, of course, they feel a lot more integrated, too, with A-plus X and Uncanny right. Avengers. Yeah, I mean, it is it is a very different feel for Marvel, and I think they're giving their creators the free reign to just play with it and see what works. It's and not to say there aren't some aren't some ideas that just make me roll my eyes. Absolutely. Savage Wolverine, I'm not a huge fan of. Yeah, and Avengers Arena. Well, I mean, it's an obvious hunger game. They know exactly what it oh, is. Oh, yeah. If you look at the promotional material, it's the Mockingjay on right. fire. Or Avengers A. You know, or alternatively, the, the you know, Battle Royale mock-up. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I'll be picking it up. It's, But I, I honestly think that book's just a good way for them to cull off a bunch of characters that they, <laughs> they really don't plan on doing anything with. Uh, so. But, yeah, it's a mixed bag. Um, so, anyway, try, let's transition a little bit. Um, and well, that's not actually much of a transition. What has been your favorite series in Marvel now so far? Series in Marvel now so far. That is a really tough. Your favorite number one. My favorite number one. My favorite first issue, um, I really think had to be Thor. 
God of Thunder, as far as number ones go. Indestructible Hulk was great, and I'll, when we review it, you know, we'll we'll love all starts, over it. We'll love all over it, but <laughs> it's just it's Jason Aaron doing, you know, what he wants to do with a God story, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, you know, you you can go read my review on the website. I said I said all of this, but I just feel like. What Jason Aaron is doing in Thor God of Thunder is less writing a comic book and more telling a myth in a visual format. You know, everything feels very still life in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that that's probably was my favorite number one. That doesn't necessarily mean it's my favorite series. So when we start talking reviews, you know, I'll I'll count down <laughs> uh, my my favorite series so far and why. Okay. So what's what's been your favorite relaunch uh, or launch? It's really tough. Uh, Indestructible Hulk, again, almost gets it for me. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, as you probably picked up on, I really like Mark Wade. Um, but I think Jonathan Hickman's Avengers takes it for me. Uh, another close competitor is uh, FF, Matt Fraction's FF. Yeah. Uh, but I think Hickman's Avengers just really cuts to the core of the Avengers as a character and then expands with it. Uh, so I, I won't spoil it too much if you guys haven't read it, um, but my review is up on, on the blog now. <clears throat> I like Jonathan Hickman already. Uh, I think Jerome Opinia does a fantastic job on the art. Um, but I think what it does best is it takes the big six from the movie and puts them in the comic book universe in a way that I could hand this number one off to almost anybody who knows that even just a little and bit about And they'd be just as lost as everybody else. And they would know everything, you know. <laughs> Which is... All they really need to know is, oh, there's more characters outside the universe. Yeah. And then you throw the big six in this situation, and then the Avengers have to expand yeah. in reaction to this threat. Yeah. What I think really is working about that series, or hopefully is working about the series, this is building a mythos around the Avengers that really has never existed. Right. I mean, the Avengers have always felt like that awesome team in you know the Marvel Universe, but it's never had the mythological status that the Justice League has right. in the DC Universe. And Hickman is really just almost creating, making the, the big six a pantheon of the Avengers. Yeah, these guys feel more iconic yeah. than they've ever felt to me. Right, and that's that's great. That may that's, not be true of Well, and that's, 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 that's something that's plagued Marvel for years, is that the Superman symbol is iconic. Yeah. Batman symbol is iconic. Captain America not but it's never been there. quite as iconic. It's getting there. You walk into quickly. a retail store, and I guarantee you, you will see the Captain America shield on shoes, shirts, underwear. Well, I mean, I'm wearing, wearing one right now, <laughs> and I have an Avengers shirt. shirt. So it's it's happening, and it, that's really cool. Um, so I think that that kind of wraps up our news and big thoughts segment of the of the podcast. So next, we will roll into reviews. Yeah, and we're not going to uh, be quite as detailed here as we might be in our write-ups, uh, but I, I just want to be a little informal about it, and we both just talk about what we're enjoying about each book. Yeah. Uh, well, so we've kind of hit touched on Thor, and we've kind of touched on Avengers, and we've also teased Hulk. Yeah. So let's go ahead and, and talk well, some Hulk. first, before we get to any of that, we're uh, going to hold off on Hulk just a little bit more. Um, we're gonna, I'm going to lay out our philosophy on reviewing books. Um, and Alex has heard this ad nauseum from me, but one of my <laughs> least favorite things in the world is to hear people say, I just don't like that book. This is stupid. Blah, blah, blah. I hate Bendis. I hate Johns. I hate whoever. 
I, I it, it's it's annoying. It's badly informed. It's poorly thought out. Um, I just I am not big for the fanboy negative negative rant, and that's for for two reasons. One, um, I don't think it helps me as a listener develop an informed opinion about what to buy. All it does is tell me what some jackass on the web wants me not to buy, which for some reason they're still buying. Right. Right. Are they getting a press? The other reason, the more negative somebody tends to be about books, specifically comic books, the more inclined I am to think that they're not a very creative person themselves. You know, that's 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 really where some of my if you've ever tried to write a comic book and Alex is in the process of trying to script (laughs) something out, I've I've tried to script out you know, some fiction works, and you know how hard the process is. And we have a very good rule of thumb when it comes to reviewing books that Alex kind of developed, um, your whole premise execution mm-hmm. idea. So can you explain that to readers, how how we kind of judge books and, and decide whether they're successful or not? Yeah, so one thing that's, that's great about, um, I guess, the Internet and comics being such a big industry right now is just, dozens of opportunities to hear the creators actually talk about what they're doing. So uh, you can go and read an interview with pretty much anybody about any New 52 book, DC, Marvel Now book, anything you want. You can kind of get their thesis for that book. It's kind of, here's what I want to explore about Thor. And then taking that what you know from hearing it directly from the creator and not a solicitation blurb or an editorial, you're going to love this advertisement, you can kind of see how successful that creator is in executing what their idea was. Um, and so I, I really like that accessibility. You know, yeah. uh, other sites like Comic Vine even let you kind of have Q&A sessions. They had one with Scott Lobdell uh, not too long ago, and I'm not a big fan of Lobdell's work, but the guy was completely and totally honest. This is what he wanted to do with Red Hood and the Outlaws, and if you weren't a fan of it, well, that's not what he was writing. He was writing this, right. and He's writing that well. Yeah, and we live in an age where there's so much variety in what you can buy off the shelves that if you don't like a certain genre of book, like you're not a 90s big guns, big action kind of person, then just stay away from that kind of yeah. thing. There's, there's plenty, plenty of, of options. options. There's plenty of options. And, you know, I was telling Alex that, you know, because I tend to limit my comic book budget very strictly – I only buy the stuff that I think is going to be really deep and have a large amount of rereadability and touch on big themes that I can kind of go back and look at and critique. I'm going to I'm going to look for a lot of depth. There's other readers, and you know we know tons of them that they just want to read a fun story. Yeah. And the great thing about living in uh, this age of comic books is that that's all out there. There's plenty of stuff for every age and every type of reader. Um, and so th- I'm of the opinion there aren't many books that are just plain bad. I mean, they are out there. Um, but usually, you know, I, I would only say that a book is bad if it lays out a premise and just fails to accomplish it entirely. Yeah. Or if there's just too many plot holes and bad scripting or bad editing. Bad editing. That stuff does happen. You know, that does happen. That doesn't mean every creator out there has some kind of intrinsic value. If they're bad, they're bad. But it's a little, we can come at it from a little more nuanced angle these days, other than whether Jim Lee's stuff looks good this month. (laughs) Right. 
Um, and so, and I mean, and this is something we'll probably t- touch on um, either in a segment later on this show or next, maybe next show, where we'll we'll kind of break down where that culture of negativity or uh, the you know the culture of nerd negativity um, comes from. You know, why are we so critical? of the art that we really claim to love. You know, why do people beg and beg and beg for a game to come out and want it to rush and rush and rush and get to the store, and then they're upset and can't understand why it's not perfect. Um, you know, and it's ruined their day, yeah. and they're never going to buy anything from this company again, even though they will go straight out and buy <laughs> it. I mean, I think that's a, that is a conundrum that is worth talking about, um, and maybe we'll talk about that in a later segment, either for this podcast or, or maybe in the next podcast. Yeah, it's definitely a discussion we'll have, and yeah. of course, we don't have any direct answers for that, but... Uh, it's, this is comic critique, <laughs> you know, so our goal is to look at comics and comic culture and give a good, solid critique of, of what we think is going on. Um, so with that in mind, uh, we're gonna we're going to be reviewing comics as art, um, as as story with with art as with um sorry I just totally forgot vis- my words are stories with a visual art component to them, um, and we're also not going to give you bad reviews. If we don't like something, we don't have we're not we're we're just gonna leave it alone. We're gonna recommend what we think you should buy. Not what you shouldn't. Well, and we're also reviewing mostly just our pool list. So this is stuff we're putting on so money out of the So this is the best of the best. And as, you, as you'll see, a couple weeks ago, I've actually dropped a couple books from my pool list a- after we started this blog. Uh, I ended up dropping Earth 2 and World's Finest. And I laid out exactly why I dropped those in my review, so you can kind of check that out. So if, if we ever do give a negative review, we're, we're going to give our reasons for it. And it's not that those books were awful. I think they're both um, very it's good books. There were other things we thought that our money was going to be better put towards. Yeah, and they maybe could have been executed a, a little better. You can, you can read all that in detail later. Um, anyway, moving into finally talking about Indestructible Hulk. Right? I'm not, right. I'm not teasing the No, you are not. Anymore. Well, I mean, for, for we both read this book, and it's hard to come up with something that this book doesn't do right. I mean, it is very, very tough to get number ones right because there's so much setup that's usually involved. And yeah. you see this with virtually every other book I had on my pull list as a number one the past month, that there was just a lot of setup and team building, and I wasn't really sure about, is this gonna is this book going to work? Um, and Indes- Indestructible Hulk just is as close to a perfect number one as I think you're ever going to read. And I know I said Thor was my favorite, and that it is my favorite. However, objectively, I think Hulk might have been the, be- the most successful launch in terms of setting out its premise and then just executing it right off the bat. Yeah. So what really stands out about Inde- Indestructible Hulk? Well, first of all... Um, this is a different Hulk book than you've ever really seen before. We are we're seeing Bruce Banner finally being as smart as he should be, right? You know, Jason – not Jason Aaron. Jason Aaron used to write Hulk. Mark <laughs> Wade has kind of taken the Mark Ruffalo approach to Bruce Banner and just run it with well, it. Oh, I, I said this earlier when we were talking about it. The book finally has a starring character back. Bruce Banner is – the title character. Yeah, yes, he's also Hulk, but for a long time it's just been Hulk. Right. And Banner's either been split and he's been a villain, or there were long stretches where they were merged and right. it was just Hulk with a little bit of intelligence. 
Banner here is the star. Banner wants to start being, you know, like Tony Stark. Right. He wants to be the guy that cures cancer on right. Tuesday. And then as the Hulk on Wednesday bashing up evil right. robots. And what I really love about it is as smart as Bruce Banner is purported to be, he's never been smart enough to manage the Hulk. He's always been trying to fight it off or cure it and not put his, you know, notable intellect to better use to actually solve problems that can be solved. And here you hear, see him trying stop trying to smash through a wall, no pun intended, and actually go around a corner and say, if I can't get rid of Hulk, then I can treat him as a force of nature that it is and just aim it at something useful when, when, it, when it comes up. Right. And so you see Bruce Banner actually thinking his way around a problem and, you know, being in control of his own destiny. And I love it. I think it's wonderful. I think the more heroes we can have in the Marvel Universe who use their brain instead of their fists, the better. Yeah, well, and that's, that's a big core theme of Marvel. And it's nice to see one of the original great thinkers of Marvel being a great thinker. Being a great Marvel. thinker. Um, but the, the pacing of the issue is especially good, yeah. in my opinion. You know, Banner's kind of meeting with Maria Hill. Um, the tension there is great. The ticking clock motif that uh, Lanil Yu right. uses really gives the scene a lot of you tension. Talk, you talked about that, that it kind of creates that setting of tension where Bruce is not anxious about it at all. Right. But everybody else who knows that he's the Hulk is anxious. Well, and the reader's anxious. You know, nobody in the, the cafe where he and Maria meet know that this guy's the Hulk. And, you know, they rustle him and they drop his tea and the guy slaps him on the back. And the, the clock is there just right. to remind the reader, this happens again. You don't know what's going to happen is in this little gonna, cafe. Is he going to beat Maria Hill into the <laughs> ground? Is, is, is she going to be a one-shot character in this book? And it – and um, – for, for a story for, – for an issue that's a lot of talking heads and then a lot of Hulk in the last couple pages – I think it does what it needs to. It, it establishes feel that. Right way, though. Yeah, it well, it feels feel like exciting it. the whole time. Yeah. I mean, you get the sense. I mean, Mark Wade is is really good in this issue at being a show-me-don't-tell-me writer. If he can show you something that's going to happen, that's what he's going to do instead. And he gives this great just setup of here's what um, this whole book's going to be wrapped up in. Bruce Banner, Maria Hill, Bill lots Coulson. of tension. Bill Coulson somewhere. Well, he's and, texting with him. Right. And, uh, you know, Bruce kind of forcing Maria Hill to let him work for S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah. And then showing him exactly why it's a good idea in a very quick amount of time, saying, you see this problem that would have gotten your entire team killed? Took me two pages of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and as much as we, we love the issue, you know, it, it's not perfect like anything. Uh, I think Muse Art, while probably some of his best stuff, a little static at times. I'd like to see a little more motion from the Hulk. Um, and I think some of the calculators uh, dialogue was a little cheesy, but I kind of like it. It's extremely cheesy, but, but I really it's like a calculator. It. He's some he's a lame villain who thinks he's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it was fun, though. And the yeah. fact that that part it transitions pretty well, actually. I started this as a, as a critique and a negative, but it actually transitions really well from high-concept banner talk to zany fun Hulk action. Right. So it kind of – actually, I know I like that. Yeah. It transitions, and uh, it's it's good. It, it, I think it finally is – it feels like a quirky sci-fi book, and that's a good place for a whole Well, it also finally gives 
the character a real place in the Marvel yeah. universe. He's not hiding from the army. He's not in a right. h- underground in a hole. He's not in space right. making out with space aliens. He's the reason he's an Avenger, and the reason he's with Shield, and you know, it feels like he belongs there. That Hulk is the strongest one there is, so you want him on your side. Exactly. Um, so it's it's a very successful book. I do agree with a, a little bit with Alex on the art issue. One thing I would have liked would be for the Hulk to the Hulk on the inside of the cover to look a lot more like the Hulk on the outside of the cover. I think that that kind of crew that buzz cut look with the Hulk on the front is it's just a great new iconic well, look and for that, Hulk. And it actually kind of reflects how Banner looks. But every time we've seen Hulk in every other Marvel Now issue. It's the raggedy purple pants and the yeah. long hair. I think we're going to see more we're of that when he gets his armor. I mean, you already see that in Avengers with Steve Rogers adopting the new Captain America costume at the end of Avengers. Right. Yeah, they're kind of not just throwing these new costumes out, out at us. They're giving us a reason. That's Even really if nice. it's only, you know, half reason. It's still, yeah. it's a little nice it's to nice. understand why Cap has all these lines on his costume now. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> they, they, they are, they're following very closely with this idea that they are trying to ease the reader into a new Marvel status quo rather than just throwing them straight into new craziness. Yeah. Unless your name's Jonathan Hickman. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's Hulk. Um, next up... Uh, I guess we could go ahead and just do a brief review on Thor. Yeah, we'll talk about it. We we're already talked about it, so we'll talk about it. Phil mostly did the talking, so I guess I'll, I can tell you Well, some we're of my two thoughts. issues in now, so there's plenty of stuff about Thor to review. So, what what is, for you, what is working about this book? Yeah, I, uh, it's kind of like you said, it feels less like a traditional capes and spandex superhero book and more like, you know, a, a Greek mythology kind of thing. Thor is actually a god. You know, he answers prayers on alien planets and brings right. them rain. And he goes to the with the Vikings in the past and drinks mead with them and right. helps them hunt. You know, he feels much more fleshed out, yeah. much more like his concept. I mean, the concept is he's Thor, god of thunder. Yeah. And here he actually feels like yeah. that. And, and this book makes it feel like Thor the Avenger is hardly a blip on the radar in the life of a guy. Yeah, he's immortal. And, that's and he's great. just kind of hanging out with the Avengers doing good works there, but he's also off doing other godly things. You right. get the sense that he's, more, he's almost like Superman. You know, he's going and he's doing all this stuff to protect but all the non Superman. He's immortal. He lives... Well, Superman can still beat him. But Superman can still beat him in a fight, but the scope of Thor's life is just massive compared to any other any other being. Yeah, and and Jason Aaron really hits that home here. Um, so it was pretty. It was very very good issue, and I like number two. Number two got blasted a little bit by some other reviewers. It did a little bit, but I, I think most of the um, reviews of it were at least mediocre to good. I think. It's actually a much more successful book than, than people gave it credit for, and here's why. Um, my first read-through, um, I wasn't really feeling the book, and then the second time I read through it, I picked up on a couple of things that I think really make make this story uh, that Jason Aaron is telling really interesting. Um, so, And I said this in my write-up of the review, but I'll, I'll, I'll say it here, too. One thing that happens a lot in comic books is that the reader has knowledge that the main characters do not, right? So we will sometimes know what a villain is up to before, you know, the readers do. And spoilers, Red Skull (laughs) is psychic because he has Professor X's skull. We know that. 
even though the Avengers don't necessarily know that. Right. In this book, and especially in issue two, we have no idea why the hell the Butcher is killing gods, why right. he hates them so much and feels it necessary to get rid of them, and why he is so devoted to this that he's doing it over the course of many, many millennia, right? And Thor kind of alludes to this idea that he might know why somebody would want to get rid of the gods. He talks about this mad god who was in the pit that was waiting execution, and he looked into his eyes and expected to see madness, and he said he saw perfect logic and reason, and it was more frightening than if he had been mad. And I think that is a a really foreboding um, idea that we can see a villain's um, motives and they somehow kind of make sense. Like, that's creepy. That really messes with us um, when we start empathizing with a villain's motives. I don't know if that's actually what's going on here, but the fact that we don't know why the Butcher is doing what he's doing, but Thor does and it worries him. I mean, that's really interesting. Yeah. That gives me a reason to kind of keep reading and wanting to know what's going on. I mean, is there going to be some huge philosophical you know, reason why the gods exist, but the butcher thinks they should not? And how is that going to be resolved? Now, it could be that, you know, just that Thor killed the butcher's mama and he hates <laughs> them all. You know, or a god killed the butcher's mama and right. he wants to kill them all. And if so, I might be a little bit disappointed with it just being an old-fashioned revenge story. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that Aaron has probably a much more um, grandiose reason why all this is taking place and why somebody would be waging war on the gods. And it will probably say something about the concept of godhood and worship and idolatry and things like that. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to seeing what else comes out of that series. We, the first two issues set it up in a great way. Anything else on Thor? No, I think you said it all. Okay, great. Um, so, well, I guess, do, do we just want to finish off my full list? And then yeah, yeah, and we'll hit the month. Okay, so we really um, have a couple other books. Uh, one thing I've been reading is Uncanny Adventures, and I'm in love with this book, um, as I am with everything on my full list. I only pull five books, maybe a few more a month, um, depending on if I'm just, like, dying for something. But... Um, you know, so I tend to really like the books I read. Uh, Uncanny Avengers is written by, you know, what who is probably my favorite writer, uh, Rick Remender. And issue one is a lot of setup, and there's some cool ideas that are that are kind of played with. And um, but issue one does kind of what the standard issue one does, which is we're getting the team together. Here's the characters, mm-hmm. and kind of introducing them. And oh, by the way, here's the villain, and he's got Xavier's skull. Um, you know, so it, it sets a lot of things up, but not a lot really necessarily happens. And in number, issue number two, things just take off. Yeah, in a big um, way. Just a big way, in a, just a big way. And one thing, I think maybe one of the most striking things that I didn't really mention in my write-up, so I'll mention it here, uh, was that Reminder captures the uh, mutant human dilemma really well, and just why Red Skull being added to this mix with psychic powers is so scary, because he's taking a very tense situation where humans and their mutant lovers or mutant children mm-hmm. or mutant waitresses 
are kind of sort of barely getting along with each other and maybe haven't really decided they hate each other yet and, you know, haven't really thought a whole lot about what this thing means for humanity. And Red Skull just twists that just enough to where, you know, people can start to believe that it's us or them. And things just are get crazy yeah, well, very, very quickly. I mean, it really drives home that, you know, Red Skull is quite literally a Nazi. Right. You know, he even refers to Hitler as the Fuhrer. I butchered that. Uh, all through, yeah, all throughout this, this issue. Uh, and it's kind of terrifying. It's like, what if superhero Hitler had mind control powers? Right. And could broadcast them over modern day communications devices. That's right. Dang, and that's then, a terrifying and it, thing. And it would be frightening enough if Red Skull was just doing this for his own gain. But no, he genuinely believes that it's the mutants or the humans, and it's his responsibility to make sure that the humans win. Right. It's back to your, you know, it's, he's not a one-dimensional villain. He's not a one-dimensional. I mean, he is pretty close. He's as close to a one-dimensional well, villain. Well, he has a Red Skull, you know, skeleton man. But he's not, uh, he's not your typical I'm-out-to-conquer-the-world kind of guy. He thinks he is 100% convinced that what he's doing is is for the betterment of mankind, and fathers everywhere should throw their mutant babies off a cliff because <laughs> it's the only just thing to do. Yeah, and, well, and beyond that, I think I think the issue uh, Rick Reminder's uh, this is the strength of his really does a great job of getting in the heads of the characters. He's a hell of a character writer. Uh, Wolverine, uh, the only Wolverine I really like is Rick Reminder's Wolverine. I'm not yeah, typically a fan of the character, but when Rick Reminder's writing him. Whatever, he can suddenly be my favorite superhero. Yeah. Uh, he does a similarly great job with Rogue. Yeah, which was, you were not looking forward to Rogue being in this book at oh, all. Oh, no, I've never liked Rogue very much. She's, but she's great. And she's always book. been the stereotypical, you know, southern girl, and that's always annoyed me a little bit. But she is so cool in this book. And I know this is comic critique, and we're supposed to use bigger words than cool. <laughs> but she's just cool. Like, she is just this character who, A, she has this power that she's struggled forever to get under control and now she's just the master of it like she her thing is she can just take somebody else's power master it in a heartbeat and use it yeah you know unless well, her name I, is scarlet witch well yeah well that's a whole another thing scarlet and, which is crazy um the other thing is great is like Grimminder with just a few lines establishes rogue is this character who's just incredibly comfortable with her sexuality you know, she's kind of the Madonna of the mutant universe who just kind of makes other people uncomfortable with her, how comfortable she is with herself. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Emma Frost? Kind of like Emma Frost. Well, Emma Frost is is different. Um, you know, she's more of a dominatrix. Rogue is kind of more the character that is it, just it, comfortable with herself. Yeah, well, he does accomplish that in a way that doesn't come across as the, the typical empowered female in comics like uh, Starfire came across last year. No, she's just... It's, she's not, it's not casual sex, mindlessly, oh, I've, my body's great and that's empowering to make men lust after me. It's a, li- it's a little more depth than that, and that's something he pulls off with, with a depthness that's rare. But she's just a character who has obviously fought very hard to be confident in who she is, and now she is. Yeah, and, and I, I've missed a lot of that character development because I wasn't reading X-Men Legacy right. prior to AVX. But I can definitely tell from, you know, the last time I read Rogue to this time I've read Rogue. It's a different character. She's moving right. forward. And any kind of progression in a, in a <clears throat> industry that thrives on having the same character and the same mask for 70 years, any yeah. kind of progression in a, in a, in a genre like that is, is 
encouraging. Yeah, and some of it's really great. Another, the other female character in this book, Scarlet Witch, I mean, is just written to perfection. Um, Reminder seems to get this idea that nobody else has really ever done very well, except for maybe Bendis with, with House of M, but Wanda is really the link to the whole Marvel Universe, because she's an Avenger who is a mutant, whose powers are mutant-based, but magic. It's magic. <laughs> and so, uh, and, and just in a few simple frames, once again, being a much more of a doer than a teller, you know, he has Rogue steal Scarlet Witch's powers, but she can't use them because, as Scarlet Witch declares, only a witch can use, can control magic. And that's awesome. <laughs> it's just, it's very, it's it's pointing out just the absolute uniqueness of Scarlet Witch and why this is the perfect team for her to be on. Because if there's any character that can make things right between mutants and humans, I think it's got to be Wanda Maximoff. Yeah. Um, yeah. She messed things up in the first place. She... And if she and Rogue can get right with one another... Maybe they can fix it. Maybe they can fix it. And that that's another thing that's really great, is that, um, you know, Remeter does this great job of using juxtaposition in this book, where he's kind of echoing Rogue's own, own non-acceptance with the X-Men because she was a villain who mm-hmm. fought against the X-Men. And then he's kind of flipping that into Rogue's own non-acceptance of the Scarlet Witch. Well, and Scarlet Witch's ready acceptance into the Avengers. Right. You know, Captain America is very different from the X-Men. He just took her and Quicksilver on, whereas the Rogue faced a lot more persecution coming in on the X-Men, who are mutants themselves. You know, and fold. facing persecution. So this this theme of just, there's layers of persecution that Remeter's playing with. Red Skull is persecuting the mutants, and then even within the mutant world, there's this threat of the Civil War breaking out. Mm-hmm. And there's this tension between characters. And then even on the team, there is the Uncanny Avengers team that's kind of slowly coming together haphazardly. There's this idea of judgment. Um, and you see that with Wolverine as well, where he doesn't really like the idea that he's been kept out of the loop. And that makes him a little bit resentful of Havoc being chosen as team leader. Right. And Cap for making the choice. And Cap for making the choice without him. So you see all this kind of this idea of tension and resentment and it's it's kind of echoed at different layer different layers so remit this is a this is this is a really good book it's got a lot of good ideas running through it and the only thing that's stronger than the ideas is the character development yeah which is reminder's hallmark which is reminder's hallmark that's what makes him who he is okay so obviously we love that book uh, we love it. It's great. Uh, um, so moving on, the next two. Oh, are you finished with your pool? We'll do all new X Men. Oh, I forgot about all. Yeah, new your X-Men. favorite. It is. It. I didn't think it was going to be my favorite. I really didn't. I'm more. I got into this book more out of a feeling of allegiance to the X Men than anything, um, because I was. I'm not incredibly trusting of uh, Bendis. Um. I. I. And you know. And maybe this is just because I talk to people that tend to not like Bendis named Alex. Um, <laughs> but I like Bendis a whole lot more than some other people like. I Bendis. know, I know. I'm just I'm I'm giving you giving you some grief. But um, all new X Men um, has taken um, has taken a very strange idea, and it's managed to do a lot with it. Um, now, issue one, I was not huge on because Bendis did a lot of exposition on things he had already laid out in various interviews. 
and that's probably my biggest issue. And, with that, it. and that there is a down. You know, we praised the interview thing earlier. There is a downside to right. it too. Right. I mean, he said things as if they were huge plot twists in issue one that we knew all about. Like, you know, I think I pointed this in my, my in issue one where they just repeatedly said, if the old X-Men were here, yeah, I they would like be sad. Hey, guess what? I'm foreshadowing something here. <laughs> I'm foreshadowing something here. Like, look, I'm foreshadowing. It's really cool. I'm using good writing techniques, you know? It's almost like Bendis is whapping us in the face with <laughs> the fact that he's capable of using a writing mechanic, a basic writing mechanic. And that's just to say that I was not in, I was not in completely sold by issue one. I mean, I like the idea of what was what's going on, the idea that the you know mutant civil war is threatening to come out, and and then this actually kind of pokes fun at what Marvel's been doing the last ten years with the civil war thing by having you know the mutants say, oh gosh, we don't want another civil war where all the good guys fight each other, and who knows what the villains are going to be doing, and all we're going to do is decimate our own numbers, and it would just be stupid to do that. Who would ever have a civil war? You know, and that's great. I think that's actually pretty good. But once we get to issue two, and we start seeing the consequences of Beast bringing the, yeah, the teenage X-Men. Yeah, by the way, the primary concept is that Beast travels in time to bring the teenage first class X-Men to the present. And so that they can that keep Cyclops <laughs> from committing mutant genocide by you know, leading a badly thought out revolution. Yeah. So that's the premise. Uh, so that's the premise. And so in the second book you just start to see things things uh play out very quickly. Jean takes no time at all to figure out that she's dead. And one of the great lines in the in the book is when they show up and they're like, Oh, where are we? This great place is great and Jean's just like, Why is this school named after me? <laughs> you know? And then you have um you know, Beast seeing his future self, basically dying. Spoilers again. Yeah. Um, it, it, you know it the first page. If you open the first page of the first issue, you know Beast is dying. So I'm not giving away anything important there. Um, you know, Iceman doesn't really have as much of a freak out because basically he's the same character with a different coat of paint as he was when he was a teenager. Teenage Iceman kind of freaks out. Though. Teenage Iceman does freak out. And I wonder if that's because he looks bizarre or because he realizes how little he's actually grown his character. I don't know. I don't know. If I were to see myself all spiky spikes, so, you know, I'd probably be freaked out. Maybe. Okay. He looks real smooth in his original. But as far as, like, becoming a messed up person, Iceman has probably been the least... Oh yeah, no, he gets off light compared to the He gets off light compared to everybody else. And so you have, you know, Iceman, I think we covered, Cyclops is completely befuddled by what's become of himself in in the future, and he spends most of the issue doing what he does best, which is brood in a corner about what's going (laughs) on. Um, And then you have Angel, who probably wisely says, I just don't even want to know what's happened to me, which if you read Uncanny X-Force, you know exactly how screwed up his character has gotten. Um, and so this Bendis writes best when things are just happening really bad. And he doesn't have a lot of time to just sit back and just talk about it for, right. for an entire issue. And I think he's been conscious of that tendency in these first couple of issues, and so he's kept things moving fast to avoid that. Um, and we see more of that in issue three, where... You know, Cyclops' X-Men, which basically consists of him, Magneto, Magic, and Emma Frost, are not getting along, but sticking together because they basically have to, and trying to make the best of it. And 
He's. Do- I mean, Bendis is doing a lot of really good things to set up a new X-Men status quo in this book. <clears throat> Excuse me, to set up a new X-Men status quo in this book. You see Magneto taking on a role as almost Cyclops's Jimmy Cricket. Yeah. Where Cyclops, you know, our modern day Cyclops, we have to come up with better nicknames for this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is trying to let himself off the hook for killing Xavier and almost destroying the world by saying it's a Phoenix Force. It was a Phoenix Force. It was a Phoenix Force. It was a Phoenix Force. And if Bendis was a really lazy writer here, he could just let that happen. It's a perfectly easy gimmick to use where, oh, nobody was really a bad guy because it was all the Phoenix Force's fault. But Magneto says, no, Cyclops is going to tell you something and you just need to deal with it. You wanted everything you did to happen. The Phoenix Force didn't get in your head and tell you you wanted to change the world in your own image. That was something you wanted, and you just had unlimited power to do it. And he's still doing it. And he's still still trying. He's still trying to do it, although it it almost seems like you said the word you used was uh, grasping for straws. Yeah, it's it's almost – I like the Cyclops' team, which is detailed a lot more in issue three uh, than the other two, is – they don't really know what to do. Their powers are on the fritz. They're wanted by the government, but they've been heroes. You know, they don't know what else to do. So they're supposed they're, to do something good. Yeah. So they're, you know, they're they're kind of desperately trying to find the cause and maybe misguidedly abducting or rescuing, however you look at it, yeah. mutants off the street as they pop up um, to save them from the big bad humans who aren't necessarily trying to do anything bad to them. Yeah. Unless you were paying attention to Uncanny Avengers. <laughs> So uh, yeah, I, I, I've I've enjoyed all three issues more, a lot more than I thought I would since I was even less excited than Phil. I'm not as much of an X Men fan as he is, uh, nor a huge fan of Bendis's work in general. But the the, the stories really won me over, and I think uh, assuming that they don't stretch this out forever, like the teenage heroes cannot stay in the present forever. They can't. I mean, uh, assuming they don't stretch this out and try to turn it into something it's not and keep it moving at a brisk pace, I think it's going to be a great book. Yeah. And so I, I think this what this book has been successful at is, just like I said, establishing a new status quo for the X-Men. And the X-Men are at this, their best when they are in tatters, when they have no idea what they're supposed to be doing. And Killing Xavier has allowed that to just happen. And the X-Men don't know what to do. They're just trying to do the best they can to live up to that I, that dream of mutants having a place in the world. And they're doing it in different ways, and they're doing it in ways that the young X-Men are just appalled by. Right. But I think the great tension there is that there are just consequences to things happening. And Scott, what is he supposed to do at this point? I mean, because if he really is going to pay for his crimes, he just has to sit in jail forever. But that's that's not going to suit him. Right. Well, he's a control freak. He's a control freak, and he's and he's got to, and damn it, he's got to save Xavier's dream, even if he's destroying it. Right. You know, and so I think that it's, there's a great, I'm going to use that word juxtaposition again, but there's this juxtaposition between the young team's idealistic dream of fixing the world and the older X-Men's reality of, well, every time we try to fix the world, something happens. And so the adult world is ju- a world of just dealing with what's happened, dealing with what you've done, and then just having to make the best of it. Whereas for the younger X-Men, they, they're, they're, that's not there yet. So I think there's, there's some loss of innocence there, and that's really 
a great theme for that book. And so that's my full list. Um, I also review Manhattan Projects in my every 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 month that it comes out. It's it's not on a very regular release schedule right now. Um, it's an excellent book. Um, I won't go into too much detail because we want to get to Alex's book too. But um, what you should you should know is that this is basically a Hickman Unleashed book. If you've read his Fantastic Four FF run, and if you're reading his Avengers books, and you just want to read about science gone wild, Manhattan Projects is the book for you, boy, I'll tell you. Uh, if you liked Frank Quietly's work on New X-Men, you'll love what Nick Takara is doing. It's basically, if you like things like science, and World War II, and history, and revisionist history, especially. If you like something like Inglorious Bastards, you will love this series. And it it is, um, if you like the idea of Einstein maybe being a villain, great. It's a great book. It's 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 probably my pure I'm having fun book. Um, but it, but it's a good one. So. Sorry, I'm not giving that one a whole lot of time. Um, you can, we'll, we'll probably do a segment at some point on just the out there books that we're reading. Absolutely. But we'll get to we'll get to Alex's um, best four books before we do that. Yeah. So uh, I picked out four books that uh, I'll talk briefly about. I've reviewed all of these uh, a little more extensively on the blog, um, but I got a couple Marvel books. Um, technically cheating. I'm technically going to talk about five. Uh, but two of them really need to be read together. Well, we, re- we really meant to talk about five, but, um, you know, we didn't spend a whole lot of time on Manhattan Project because, you know, it's not part of the Marvel now, and it's not part of the big two, and, you know, it's also we were recording a different session, and yeah, it was time so for Alex <laughs> to go to sleep. It was, uh, it was that time. Um, so anyway, so yeah, I got, uh, my non-cheating two books, which I'm still going to talk about together because it's only natural, uh, it's Fantastic Four by Matt Fraction and Mark Bailey, and then uh, FF, uh, which stands for Future Foundation, by, again, Matt Fraction and uh, Mike Allred, uh, with colors by Laura Allred, as, you know, that, that couple always does stuff together. Uh, so the reason I say the books really need to be read together is that really the continuation of the same story. If you read Fantastic Four number one, which I loved, it was a great introduction to the characters, um... They, their powers are kind of changing, uh, and at least their understanding of it. Um, so Mr. Fantastic has planned a one-year voyage throughout space and time. Uh, and while in our timeline it should only take four minutes, you know, it's the Fantastic Four, it's the Marvel Universe. So they've picked... And Reed Richards is convinced that the world can't go on without him. Because he's Reed Richards. Right. Yeah, it's a great little bit of ego work that you see more than... You see, actually see better FF than you do in Fantastic Four. Um, so the Fantastic Four doesn't really go into too much of that. That's actually the cliffhanger. But we get to meet the cast, um, just in case you know, you're know you not familiar with these characters. Everybody gets a great little character moment that really sums them up well. Reed is worried about this, uh, this, this alteration of their powers, and he's in his lab, and he's working away, just like we've always seen him do. And Ben is hilariously trying to... Um, you know, stomp out gangs in Yankee Street and trying to figure out how to turn off the internet. And of course, he fails absolutely miserably. Uh, whereas Johnny Torch is completely oblivious to Johnny anything. Torch. Johnny Torch. <laughs> Johnny Torch. Johnny Storm, the human <laughs> torch, 
completely oblivious to anything going on, and is uh, out on a date with his girlfriend in the negative zone. And who uh, is his girlfriend? Why do we have no idea? Phil. But we care a lot about her, right? Um, she's gonna be in the FF, right? We, I don't even think she gets a name. Okay. At least if she did, it was not very memorable. I mean, I've heard her called Miss Thing. Well, she's going to be wearing, we'll get to this in a second, but she's basically going to be wearing a a Big Thing robot suit. Okay. For some reason. Because Johnny's lazy. Okay. It's really what it comes down to. In fact, you see it in FF number one. Uh, all of the guys are picking picking who's, who's important to them. Uh, Mr. Fantastic goes to Scott Lang for two reasons. Uh, one, because he's, he's one of the people who's been in the Fantastic Four before. Um, he's one of the smartest men on the planet. And he really feels, more importantly, he really feels like Scott needs something. Uh, if you read Children's Crusade, uh, his daughter uh, yeah. just died, Thatcher, from the Young Avengers. Another fantastic um, story. Yeah, and, and, and you know, this, this book kind of establishes they're keeping that continuity. In case you're confused anywhere else in Marvel now. Or, or somehow think it's a new 52. Or somehow. <laughs> you're, you're reading the wrong publisher. Um, the continuity is very much intact. Um, so he, he picks he picks Scott for that reason. He feels like he needs something to do, something to be, uh, and that's going to be the future foundation. And he mm-hmm. kind of picks him to be the leader of the group for this four-minute yeah. trip. Uh, the thing goes to She-Hulk, Jennifer Walters, um, who has been in the Fantastic Four before. She's got a similar attitude to Ben Grimm, you know, happy-go-lucky, punch some stuff, go home, drink a beer. Um, we get a great sequ- sequence of them where they're working out and talking about it, and it's really casual, whereas, you know, Scott Lang freaks the hell out. It's like, no, right. I don't want this responsibility. What are you doing to me, Reed? Jen's like, oh, yeah, this should be fun. Yeah. Um, Sue, who I neglected to mention uh, at all, Fantastic Four. Well, you interrupted. I was getting to her. Um, gets a gr- Sue Torch. Sue Torch. It is Sue, Sue Woman. Sue Woman. <laughs> Susan Storm, uh, the Invisible Woman, who actually is one of my favorite Marvel characters. Period. Um, I think she she's you know she's a strong female character that's not derivative of a male character. She was there with the cast from the beginning. Um, and she you know obviously she's the mother mother to this group, but she's also um, just an incredibly intelligent woman. And that comes away across in a big way when she picks Medusa, um, which is the queen of the Inhumans. Um, and yeah, she, so how does that work? She just walks up to Adelan on uh, some invisible force-filled stairs that she makes, has some a glass of wine, and tells her she's in the FF. And Medusa just says, sure, I got nothing to do while Black Bolt's away. Okay. Well, that's... I mean, you when, got, you see the, when you see the teasers for FF, you look at this group and you're like, well, what? The, I mean, three of, them, She-Hulk. three of them kind of make sense. She-Hulk's been in it before. Scott Lang's been in it before. And Medusa, they, they've always had a really close yeah. relationship with the Inhumans. And Marvel's bringing those characters in even right. more. Black Bolt's in the new Avengers. Um, and we're, you know, they're bringing these people back in a big way. Uh, I'm almost surprised we don't have an Inhuman series. Yeah, because I mean, it does seem like they're kind of make, seeping it back in through not Marvel Now, which I think it's... I mean, Marvel Now is all about integration, so I guess in some way it makes sense that you see them popping up in different books rather yeah, than... Yeah, well, in the Fantastic Four and FF, the world feels more connected than it does anywhere else in a comic I've read in a long time. Even, even in some of the best stuff that DC's doing in the Justice League, 
even in the Batman family titles, where obviously they're all very related. Marvel Universe and Fantastic Four and FF, Matt Fraction does a very good job making it feel big, yet connected. It's not a huge deal for Sue just to walk over to Adelaine, because she's been best friends with Medusa for however many years people have actually been superheroes in the Marvel Universe. Right. With their sliding timeline, we have no idea. <laughs> But then Johnny Storm, got his name right, is just, you know, uh, there's actually a sequence where he's in the bedroom with his girlfriend, and they wake up, and they're talking about breakfast, and he's like, there's something I needed to ask you. I'll remember it later. And actually doesn't mention at all what's happening in the issue number one. So I figure issue number two comes out next week. Uh, I've got Fantastic Four number two on my uh, nightstand ready to read. Um... So I guess we'll see what he actually does there and where the robot suit comes from. Um, but the, the greatest, the great thing about both of these series is the characters, the characterization is very, very strong, uh, particularly in FF with Scott Lang. Yeah. Um, well, he has some very, very multi-dimensional ca- connections to the FF universe. I mean, you know, Doctor Doom did kind of kill his daughter. <laughs> yeah, and. and and apparently coming up, we've seen a solicitation that he's going to kind of wage war on Dr. Doom. Uh, I'm not really sure how that comes yeah. about. It will be interesting to see if that, like, interferes with his duties on the FF or if that becomes a central Well, it's, it's really interesting. He, he initially says no, hell no, to Reed. He does not want to do it. Hmm. And he's, you know, I, I, I'm, I just lost my kid. I don't want to teach a bunch of children while you're away. Um, and eventually he comes to terms with it while he's talking to Reed, um, and then he goes and introduces himself to the Future Foundation, which we've been meeting throughout the issue. It kind of works backwards a little bit. We get um, these scenes of the Fantastic Four interacting with the new FF intermixed with scenes of the children talking at the reader and telling, telling a little bit about themselves, and it turns out they're talking to Scott. Because um, he walks up and he says, hey, tell me about the Future Foundation. Uh, and if you haven't been reading Jonathan Hickman's Future Foundation or his Fantastic Four one, um, that's okay. You can jump into this without needing to know it. All you got to know is that Reed and Sue have started the Future Foundation for incredibly smart children, um, and they teach them things so that they can take care of the world when this generation of superheroes is gone. Um, but as far as the actual execution, Mike Allred has got a super iconic style that really just gives FF a very unique feel. The colors work really well. I don't know why that Laura and Mike would ever work away from each other, because it just meshes so perfectly. Um, well, it feels like an old Fantastic Four book yeah. by Jack Kirby. Yeah, it's, it's got a very Jack Kirby iconic style to it, and I think it's going to be one of the bigger art um, that's really going to stand out as part of the Marvel now. We said before that Marvel now is all about the creators, and giving Mike Allred, a guy who doesn't typically get a lot of work outside of his creator-owned stuff, um, on a big flagship book is a big part of that. Uh, I've I've talked before about how much I like Matt Fraction. Uh, As much as I did not like Fear itself, I've kind of liked everything else the dude has done. that's I, not a bad track record. Yeah, that's really good. If all you do is really foul up a massive, you know, Marvel event. Which, they have a track record of not being great. Anyway. Yeah, sometimes. Marvel events are usually mediocre for me. Yeah. And Fear Itself was below mediocre. 
Well, yeah, on that, I loved his Defender series, and some of that wacky fun is getting translated here. Both of these books are books that you can just pick up and presumably just get some good old-fashioned superhero action. Fantastic Four number one opens with the Fantastic Four fighting the dinosaur. And then they teleport back into the Baxter building and ruin breakfast. It's it's just good good old fun. Um, and if if you're looking for something that's not as serious, uh, doesn't have you know heroes maybe chopping at each other um, or dealing with deep moral quandaries, and they're just doing big science and big adventure, this is the book for you. Uh, Fantastic Four going forward is going to be kind of a Doctor Who adventure. They're going to go through the space time continuum. Well, that's a way to sell it. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I'll, I'll Compared to Doctor Who, everybody will love it. Um, Doctor Who can do no wrong. So, uh, you know, Reed builds this big ship, and they're just going to travel through time and learn stuff. Uh, they're going to tr- supposedly travel all the way from the Big Bang to the end of the universe and everything in between. And they're going to do it all in a year. Um, but, of course, on the FF side, it's only going to be four minutes. In theory. In theory. Of course, I'm sure everything has to go horribly wrong. It's Marvel Almost keeps saying. I mean, all, basically Marvel's you know, not even hiding it. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, at some point... Yeah, um, well, FF would be kind of be a crappy book that only lasted four minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean we've got issues out to number six listed already, and it looks like lots of stuff's going to be happening. Yeah, it doesn't look like it's a book that they're going to, you know, let down in the vine. No. And, and Jonathan Hickman made both of these books integrated. He launched FF, um, and uh, I think both were wildly successful, and Marvel's going to keep that going. In short, if you're going to read either of these books, I definitely think you need to be reading both, at least, at least for the first couple right. issues. We'll see what happens after issue three or so. Uh, I've read the FF2. They're still setting up. They still haven't taken off on their voyage yet. Right. Um, so we'll see what it goes. So if you're there. on a if you're on a bit of a budget, you know, still you might want to stick with the first arc with both of them, see which way you're leaning in terms of interest, and then yeah. As far as, as the differences go, Matt Fraction's doing you know big fun in both of these books, unless Scott Lang's stylistic books, you know. Well, the art really sells that. Yeah. Mark Bagley uh, tells me that we're going to have some Ultimate Spider-Man kind of action. The thing's going to punch a lot of stuff, and Reed's going to stretch, and it's going to be really fun. Um, and then Mike Allred's a little, little, little class, more classy, um, going to sell the smaller moments a little better, I think. Uh, his expressions are much more refined than Bagley's. I feel like Bagley's stuff, uh, sometimes the facial expressions get lost. Um, and maybe, especially with the thing, I don't really like his thing in issue one. You don't like his thing? I don't like his thing. <laughs> um, well, I mean, but he's always been a character I, that I think is hard to draw and make look good. It's true. You know, I mean, no matter how you draw, he's a big pile of rocks. Big pile of rocks. He's, he's very blocky. There's not. A, there's only so much detail you can really give the thing because he doesn't have normal, you know, human human right. anatomy to work with. Yeah, and some people do better with her than others, and we'll see where it goes from here. Um, anyway, to cut it short so we can move on, if you got the extra in your budget to pick up a book that's just, just flat out fun, I highly recommend Fantastic Four and FF. Um, so moving on, one more Marvel Now t- title for you, and we talked about it earlier in the podcast, Avengers number one. Um, oh it, boy. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's a huge deal. Like, it starts off with, in the beginning, yeah. um, 
Jerome Opinia really just knocks it out of the park. Uh, if well, you he's like, the best artist working in comics right He's now. fantastic. He's I, just, just, I feel like we can just say that. I, I, I would be very hard-pressed to argue with you. After after his Uncanny X-Force stuff was just stellar. So much so that when he was off the book for certain stretches... Like, I, it just hurts. It I, almost I mean, in the, leader, in the last arc is actually done by another artist. Uh, Phil Noda, not, who I love. And Noda's great, but then you go back and you read the early stuff and you're like, oh my god, he's, yeah, not, it, he's not okay yet. I actually really like that it ends with, with Noda, because there's a lot more emotional stuff going on, and I feel like Noda does yeah. that very well. No, I mean, he's a great artist, and, and I think... I mean, who's who's the who's you know who the colorist is on Avengers? Do you remember? Uh, do not off the top of my head. But it's, I don't Sorry. think it's Dean White. I think it is Dean White. Is it Dean White? Then you're no, I'm I'm, I'm 100 sure it's Dean White. Dean White, yeah, that's something that's helped X Force stay keep some continuity throughout. Is that Dean White? It's it's amazing that you even know a colorist's name <laughs> that well. Um, no, he's great. But anyway, sorry. No, no, that's a great. I had an artist just explosion there. Uh, anyway, he knocks it out of the park here. Everything from the Big Bang style beginning to the Garden on Mars, which is also the supervillain group and a literal garden on Mars, to Iron Man's repulsive and Hulk is smashing. Everything looks fantastic, um, and I can't say that enough. What's the big thing? What's the what's the theme? What's the premise so here? The premise for Avengers One is the Avengers need to get bigger. Uh, and it's really summed up nicely by an uh, interaction with Tony and uh, Cap in the beginning of the book. Um, and they're kind of talking about Avengers versus X-Men, and it I basically says things are getting too big. The threats are coming too fast, and they're too big to handle, and eventually we won't be able to hold on. And then they go on a mission uh, to Mars uh, where, the, this, where this supervillain group have shot something at Earth and potentially killed over two million people in the span of minutes. Um, and yeah. they can't handle it. They're completely and totally unprepared. Uh, even in the fight, the fight, it takes up most of the book uh, with some great lines, particularly Banner. Yeah. He only gets like one line in the whole book, but it's my favorite. Oh, yeah. Tony turns to him and he says, Dr. Banner, you're the expert on, you know, bioorganics and stuff Which, like that. Which, can we stop there for just a second? Oh, yeah, Tony, can we stop there for just a The like, interaction with the Avengers here, it feels like it's straight out of the movie. Right. It's, it's like, almost like, like Tony Stark magically actually respects Bruce Banner as a doctor. Well, I think he has to. I think it yeah. comes back to they want the Avengers to succeed in a new way, and Stark realizes that. I mean, the Hulk's back in the fold, and we don't really get why there's nobody ever comes up to us in marvel now and says here's hulk i mean we kind of get that in some well, incredible he was, hulk he was, i mean he was awesome with you know in adx and actually hulk smash for you you know but i mean but anyway uh but here it, it's I mean, i'm assuming an incredible hulk indestructible hulk sorry we'll, we'll get a little more into this eventually but he still doesn't have his armor here uh, which we know he's getting. Yeah. So I'm not sure where this falls in the timeline. Yeah, however, Cap gets his new But they do outfit. explain some of the new costuming, as we said earlier in the podcast. You know, Cap gets the crap beat out of him, is sent back to Earth uh, to rally to his new Avengers, which is not to be confused with the, the title. The sent is a little... Well, he gets shot to Earth <laughs> in a rickety plane. Yeah. Um, and he that's why he has the new armor. It's like his heavy-duty, we're-going-to-war armor. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, back to what I was talking about. And Banner, Banner really only gets one line. He said, two million people may be dead. I think we're done talking. 
and then it's the Hulk punching the crap out of stuff. And, you know, it's kind of on par with I'm Always Angry uh, from the Avengers. Yeah. It's um, the, it almost is the exact same thing. Which, but it's awful. But, it's, but it is. <laughs> it's really, it's, it's well executed. Um, Banner works with the Avengers here. Um, and that, that's a big feat in and of itself for Avengers yeah. number one. Um, I mean, Cap, everybody gets a character moment. Um, there, you know, Iron Man actually goes down first, yeah. um, despite his new fancy armor. Um, he gets wrapped up with. Does he the, have his new fancy armor? The black and gold. Is yeah. he wearing the black? Okay, I couldn't have seen him going black and gold. Yeah. Um, he, you know, he X Nihilo is too ready for him, which is I'm not sure how on the pronunciation there. I haven't heard yeah, him say X-Nihilo? it. Nihilo. Nihilo. Big glowy yellow guy with an Omega symbol. I don't know. They feel, They all feel like. Um, DC's new gods a little bit. It feels very new gods, which I'm okay with. Yeah, I mean, it, it does kind of demonstrate the escalation a lot, because the Avengers have always felt like a step below the Justice League in terms of just epic, iconic, yeah, it, you know. I'm glad you mentioned that. It actually, this reminds me, and other, other folks have said it first, but it's very true. This reminds me of Grant Morrison's Get LA. Yeah. Everybody is at their most iconic state. Um, and that's what Morrison did with the Justice League. Superman was Superman. There's yeah. no well, so he did do the red and blue during that run, but whatever. Uh, Superman was Superman. Truth, justice, and the American way. Uh, but his Batman is arguably, you know, the icon, most iconic Batman there is. And that goes for everybody else on the cast. And it goes here too. Hawkeye is kind of snar- uh, snarky, and you know he's shooting arrows, and um, he and Black Widow have a very um, it, again, it goes back to the movie. You remember that scene in the Avengers movie where they're like, remember Budapest? And he's like, you and I remember Buda- Budapest very differently. Right. And there's a scene in Avengers where he and Black Widow are trying to take down the bad guy together, and they just have this banter going. Yeah. Uh, and though Black Widow gets a little shortchanged here, uh, she does. She gets that one line. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's hard in a Hickman book to really have the spotlight ever. Yeah. Everybody gets one line or so. Black Widow probably gets the yeah. least spotlight. Um, and then Captain America has probably one of the better interactions. He's fighting the Garden's uh, robot, whose name I can't remember, and he, he's just completely outmatched. I mean, his shield bounces off the guy without him noticing, and the robot's just pounding him into the ground and trying to get him to give up so he doesn't have to kill him. And he says, yield, and Cap just says, no, not going to happen, even though he's literally getting his skull punched in. Yeah. That's Captain America. Um... So everybody gets their moment in the spotlight, no matter how brief. We even get um, a, a bit of Hulk versus Thor action again. Um, and really, you could because almost... Because it's the only way that could take down the Hulk. You throw a god at him. Yeah, or take down Thor, is throw yeah. Hulk at him. Which is you know exactly what happens. They yeah. get in Hulk's mind because he's easily manipulated, and he beats the crap out of Thor. Um, who gets a pretty gr- good moment on the nature of... of gods, you know, these guys are saying they're gods and they're going to control the fate of humanity, and Thor's like, no, I'm a god, and I protect humanity. Um, and so everybody gets their spot in the sun, but event- but it still isn't enough. Um, so when Cap would, so it turns out next issue is going to be kind of a rescue mission. Cap returns to Earth uh, and summons his new, not to be confused with new Avengers, the Avengers to be named later. To be named later. I mean, there's like maybe two peop- two or three people on the back yeah, page. Well, there's Captain actually... Marvel, okay. there's Wolverine, Wolverine, and there's Spider-Man, Spider-Woman. 
Spider-Woman and um, Cannonball. Cannonball and Sunspot. And Sunspot. And then, like, three brand new characters, right. one of which is named Hyperion, but I don't think he's the Hyperion we know. Or sort of know. I or mean, sort of, yeah. who knows? I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm very confused at the end of this issue. Hickman throws you in the deep end and doesn't apologize. He really does. I mean, he does, there's no setup. We have no idea who these people, these villains are and where they came from. They're just on Mars, and they don't like Earth very much yeah. the way it is. So they're going to fix it, and fixing it apparently means killing people. Well, it, it, there's one uh, line where uh, uh, Ex Nihilo, Nihilo, whatever. Can we just call him Goldenrod? <laughs> Gold dude. Um, he, he's growing a human yeah. on Mars because he can. To imp- because he's improving it. Yeah, he's, he's going to improve on it because he has the power to. Um, so I feel like we're rambling a little bit. Yeah, so what are the what are the big – I mean, because this feels like a – big theme book like there's deeper ideas going on of course with Hickman you're always going to get some some, uh, kind of a thesis and I think here is it's really going to be the nature of humanity and I think it's going to tie a lot into new Avengers which we haven't gotten our first issue of yet it Um, just came out today I think didn't it no next month okay um, where it's really why are there heroes on earth I think is what this is going to come down to why is earth where everything happens. Okay. Why are these new uh, villains targeting Earth? Why did the Kree Scroll War come to Earth? Why did the Phoenix come to Earth? What makes it so special? And why do the heroes exist? That's something Matt Fraction hit on at the end of his Defenders run. Um, and I think we might be seeing a bit of a con- continuation of it here because we know the Celestials will be involved in some way. Hmm. And the Celestials and Defenders, spoilers, guys, I'm sorry, created heroes on Earth because that was the only way to prevent the end of the uh, end of reality. If Earth fell, everything fell. So they manipulated events on Earth to create these heroes. That's the only reason Iron Man survived being held captive, because they needed him to. Which takes a little bit of, you know, the characters away, but it also gives... It also makes them a little bit bigger than themselves. And it reminds me of the multiverse. Yeah. Um, the you know crisis on infinite earths, the earth that we read about in DC is the centerpiece for the multiverse, and if it disappears, it all falls apart. Yeah. Uh, and and we're getting a bit of a feel with that here. Um, so it's very big in scope, but in addition to exploring that big cosmic level of things, I think it's also just going to explore how the heroes interact, why what makes them heroes, and what makes them work together. Mm. Uh, which is what we get. This arc is called Avengers World, and uh, eventually it's going to be a cast of 24 characters in one book, which is huge. Um, at the end of this issue, we're almost 18. Yeah. With the big six. But I mean, and it is essentially. Right at the end. I mean, but the theme basically is that if you are somebody who defends Earth from threats then you're basically an Avenger. You're an Avenger, yeah. Well, yeah. it's something uh, Tom Brevort said in an interview recently. Avengers are Avengers. Yeah. If they're an Avenger, they're an Avenger. So it doesn't matter. There's not this pedigree like there is with the Justice League right. currently. It's not this exclusive club. If you are a superhero and you meet, if you out to defend people who can't defend themselves, you're an Avenger. Right. Although, I mean, it is cool that Hickman kind of officially establishes that these are our six core Avengers, 
I mean, conveniently, they're the same ones that were in the movies, but it is kind of nice that we have this idea that there are layers of Avengers. Yeah. And that they kind of, and then there are, and then it kind of, the circle kind of builds outwards to people who are less and less continuously a part of the team. Yeah, the 12 Avengers books at Marvel now make a lot more sense when you read what Hickman's doing. It makes sense that everybody is an Avenger because everybody needs to be. Right. Different, different things for different purposes. Right. And I mean, I think one of the things you touched on earlier is this idea that Avengers is really going to be about humanity and why humanity rather than no humanity. Right. I mean, at least in this first arc, that's really the theme we're seeing is that, you know, there's basically there's basically these infinitely powerful beings out there on Mars who, for whatever reason, think that Earth is not good as it is. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of reasons that you come yeah. up with. Um, you know, global warming, rapid population growth. And it may not even be that black and white. It could be that they need Earth to survive right. and they're going about it in their own and way. It could be. But for whatever reason, they have already already prejudged humanity to be inferior to their concept of what should, what should exist on Earth yeah. in humanity's place. And the Avengers are essentially the best that humanity has to offer. Um, and if they're not good enough, then humanity's not good enough. Yeah, and they're I not in this first issue. They're, they're not. not. Uh, one of the well, I don't remember which villain there is because there's like four in this issue, and it's very quick pace. It's a very yeah. fast paced issue. Uh, he comes out and says it. He says they're not they're not good enough. This is the best you had to offer. This is the best you had to offer. Yeah, and, and it's laughable. I mean, it's literally laughable. Yeah, I mean, the Hulk goes down like a chump. Yeah, and turns on Thor and Iron Man. I don't even think he gets to shoot a repulsor ray. No, and he he's just, down. He's just bludgeoned it. Honestly, I mean, poor Hawkeye. And no, I think they did the most. Probably they well, actually maybe. hurt the. They actually hurt maybe. him because they shot him in the head, the back of the head, and you know he actually oh, right. cried out in pain. They're the only ones that hurt anybody. Right, right, right. So, <laughs> so, so the least your recommendation on this book. Oh, it's it is it is the absolute flagship title of Marvel now. And if you're reading Marvel, you need to be reading Avengers. That said, if you don't want to read Avengers, that's fine. There's plenty of other stuff out there. Yeah. But if you're interested in the Marvel Universe as a whole, and especially if you're coming from seeing the movies or any, any of them, right. really, this is the place to pick yeah, it up. Yeah, I think the best thing you said about this book for people who don't necessarily read a lot of comics, and if you don't read comics, I mean, thanks for listening to this. <laughs> I'm not really sure. We appreciate it. Uh, but... Uh, you said you really don't need to know anything that's happened ever in Marvel to pick this book up all, and read it. All you need to know is to have seen the movie, maybe, and know that the Marvel Universe and the comics is bigger. Yeah. That's really it. Because, I mean, going into Avengers, we knew just as little about the villain. Yeah. The movie. Uh, and it takes the big six, and it makes them the big, iconic heroes that they need to be. And are now. The yeah. Avengers were like C-list heroes before. Yeah. I mean, Cap's kooky quartet. That was a thing. That was probably the most one of the most popular iterations of the Avengers, and it was four characters: Captain America, Quicksilver, Hawkeye, and Scarlet Witch. None of those guys are <laughs> big names at the time. Yeah, but now these guys are. They're they're the equivalent of the Justice League for the first time. All right, so we got Avengers with a glowing review. Yeah, so um, absolutely FF and Fantastic Four. You know, fun books. Maybe not necessarily as big theme. Yeah. You know, maybe not as deep as the as the other team, but a lot of fun and good characters. And, and I like a good fun comic. And that's probably why my pool is a little bigger. I, I get my I get my three ninety nine's worth out of Fantastic Four if I'm smiling and laughing throughout the issue. 
Um, anyway, so shifting focus a little bit, I've got two DC books for you guys too, and these these are these are two big ones. Uh, the first being Batman, and I'm just going to talk about what Batman. Is that guy? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Who the hell is Batman? Uh, only going to talk about the main Batman series by Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo. Uh, but really, um, the big thing right now is the death of the family event, which ties into all of the Bat books, much in the same way that Night of the Owls did and uh, Scott Snyder's first Batman arc. Um, and as great as that story was, the return of the Joker and Batman number 13 was huge. Um, and in case you didn't know, in Detective Comics number one in the New 52, the Joker disappears, has his face cut off, and Tony Daniels' first issue never really explains why uh, and I'm not sure that not story ever got played out. Detective Comics being a relevant book. Yeah, true. <laughs> uh, I've, heard the, I've heard the new stuff's good. I ended up dropping it um, so that I wasn't spending too much money on the comics. Uh, but I've heard that John Lehman has come on uh, and it's actually doing pretty well right now. It's one-shot stories. Uh, it's been kind of the tradition of Yeah, with iconic, yeah, with iconic villains. Uh, with Batman going and being a detective, yeah, it's kind of a comic book, comic book continuation of the animated series. Exactly, it's which is really it's always gone kind of way I've done thought of it, which is great. Yeah, and there's 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 no negative there, and that's what John Lehman's doing now. Um, I'm not a big fan of Tony Daniel's uh, writing. Um, his art's fine; it's like a Jim Lee kind of style, um, but his writing style's always been a little lacking for me. Anyway, so uh, I'm not going to review a particular issue um, of Batman. But the event itself has just been nonstop. The return of the Joker in 13 um, is probably one of the most chilling couple of pages to a comic ever. Um, the Joker attacks the Gotham City Police Department um, to get his face back. Uh, and his dialogue is, is, I mean, honestly, I'm wondering, worried that Scott Snyder might be, be a mass murderer. Yeah. There might be bodies under his bed. Because he writes the Joker as just this terrifying force of nature, uh, much in the same way that Heath Ledger kind of portrayed him. You can kind of almost hear that sing-songiness where the uh, Ledger's Joker would kind of be lighthearted and laughing, and then suddenly he's got this deep, gravelly voice. And then you realize he's really not Joker. Right, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's on. Uh, and you can almost hear that when, when you're reading his yeah. style. And part of that is the letterer. Who's honestly whose name I should have yeah, looked up? Yeah, I've noticed that it's really the, the lettering is really scratchy. It, yeah, it's it's like this um, handwritten kind of thing almost, um, and it really gives Joker a very distinct, unique voice, uh, which he deserves. He's you know the the big uh, the big boogeyman of Gotham. It's funny you almost don't see Joker in the first issue. I don't think uh, you, you see, see like the consequence, but for the well, most of the book, it's almost like. He's literally a force of nature. You see everything that happens in his wake. Yeah. Well, the the opening assault on the GCPD, um, everything's bathed in shadow. It's almost like a horror movie. Yeah. Um, he cuts the power to the building, and he's speaking through a, a microphone, and he's basically taunting Gordon as he walks around the precinct and kills his men, and then dumps their bodies at Gordon's feet, and then turns the lights back on. And by men, you mean all everyone? Well, uh, not everybody. Just <laughs> just the this part of the precinct where they're holding it. Right. Uh, he taunts him. Says, you know, he he knows exactly where he hides all of his cigarettes from Barbara. He knows where Barbara lives. He knows just what it feels like to sit under Gordon's bed when he's sleeping and listen to him snore or weep. He knows how the meshing in his mattress feels at night. 
and his body tw- tw- turns over. I mean, it's just terrifying. You know, and, and Gordon is, uh, you know, obviously so shaken you, up. So you get the sense that Joker hasn't actually been missing for the last year. No, yeah, Joker's been gone for a full year, but you get the sense that that full year he's been very, very busy. Um, so I won't spoil some of the big surprises, but you don't actually see the Joker's new face until the very end when he opens the door to Wayne Manor and starts his whole thing. He kidnaps Alfred. We still don't know where he is. Um, speculation that he is the big death in Death of a Family. Um, and then things start to move very rapidly. Gordon um, comes very close to death. Um, and then when Batman finally confronts him, he gets on Batman's own microphone and talks to the entire Bat family and basically says, this man's not who you think he is. You're all weighing him down and changing the dynamic of Gotham. You've made him weak, and I'm going to prove it to you. And enacts his plans to kill every single one of the Batman family. Um, so it t- then it ties directly into each book. And Batgirl, um, Barbara Gordon's mother, has been kidnapped. And we haven't seen all of them yet. And Batman and Robin, which I just picked up and haven't read yet. Uh, Robin goes searching for Alfred and runs into the Joker. Uh, it looks like he's probably going to ruin Nightmare. Oh, great. So the boy psychopath. <laughs> right. And they had a great encounter in Grant Morrison's Batman and Robin before the New 52. I'm curious to see what happens here. Um, so it, he's just out to ruin every single one of their lives. Uh, and it seems like he's going to succeed on some level. Um there's speculation that Damien could die as a result here, which I actually doubt because Grant Morrison needs him in Batman Incorporated, oh, yeah. and he's not done yet. Um, but I, I cannot recommend this title, this event, highly enough. The main title is enough to get by and, and read what you need to so read. So you're not, if you read only Batman, are you going to be completely lost and confused? No, that's what, and that's what I was just saying. If you're reading just Batman, you're going to be fine. I'm only picking up Batman, Batman and Robin, Nightwing, and Batgirl. Is that all? Yeah, that's all. Well, there's, there's Red Hood and Outlaws, yeah. there's Detective, there's Batman and the Dark Knight. There's <laughs> there so many Bat books. It's like more than the Avengers books for Marvel. Um, so you don't you don't need to be reading all of them to get the, the meat of the story is going to be happening in Batman itself, just like Night of the Owls did, uh, which is a very successful event format in my opinion. You get the main storyline and if you want to get the others, they're even standalone issues so that's all you get of the others to see the whole story. You don't have to go back and read everything that came before it. Um, and each one's very contained. You'll figure out what happened to each character within the main Batman title um, but you just won't see that interaction. Anyway, Scott Snyder has just absolutely been um one of the defining creators for DC right now, uh, on par with Jeff Johns before the New 52 with his uh, reboot of Flash and uh, Green Lantern. And uh, Batman wasn't bad. No, the New not 52, by any means. By any means. Grant Morrison was writing it. Yeah. Who's, I'm a huge fan of Grant Morrison. I know he's kind of a polarizing But to say that, this, that somebody can follow Grant Morrison up on the Batman run. That's big. Speaks perfectly well. He's perfectly well written. I mean, and I think Snyder stories are even more approachable. It's really hard. As much as I like Morrison, it would be really difficult for me to hand somebody, even Batman Incorporated number one for the New 52, yeah. and say, this is all you need. Yeah, and I think that's a difference in approach to comics. Because for me, you know, I, mean, I like the weird, crazy, out there, big statements on humanity. Yeah. So Grant Morrison is, let me put it that way, Final Crisis is like my favorite event for the past 
everybody else is just so goofy and stupid and weird and strange, and I just I don't get it. That's okay. But Gr- Morrison, you know, he the thing he loves about comics is that they're a serialized format, and he wants to use that as best he can in a way where you need to go back and reread the issues and see right. the interwoven story. Uh, Scott and Snyder puts it all on the page, issue to issue, uh, in just an incredibly visceral way. If you haven't read his American Vampires, that really hits home. Uh, the man does a lot of research, and he puts a lot of time and effort to it, and it's very obvious. Um, as far as the art goes, Greg Capullo does a fantastic job. It's very expressive. Sometimes it's got a lighthearted animated series kind of feel to it, because Batman is very iconic. He, you know, maybe a little bit of exaggerated uh, in a good way. Um, what all is what all is Capullo on right now? He, I, as far as I know, he's only on Batman. As far as okay. the main two go. Um, he could be doing some other okay. creator-owned stuff, but I'm not familiar with it. Um, but I really like him. I'd be willing to check out some of his other books based on his art alone. Um, and he's got a lot of range. He's got a lot of um, panel techniques that he puts to good use, especially in Not of the Owls. He did some very visual stuff there. Uh, yet in one of the issues, I think it was number five, Batman's trying to make his way through this maze, and the pages actually flip mm. and turn as Batman goes mad. And you kind of see his um, descent into madness through the way the pages are laid out to the point where you're actually reading it backwards by the end of the issue. Um, So he's very creative, very out of the box, uh, and I like that. So if you like Batman at all, and chances are if you're listening to this, you love Batman, you need to be reading Scott Snyder's books. And like I said before, if it sounds like we like these books too much, that's because we review the ones we like. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to put a whole bunch of time into, you know, complaining about stuff we don't like. Yeah. Um, so, uh, last book, uh, I've been talking a lot, but last book I'm going to talk about uh, in a little more briefly uh, is Grant Morrison's Action Comics, which is actually coming to an end uh, with the next issue, um, which is... Very sad. sad. <laughs> Very sad. Uh, as we've said before, we're both big fans of Grant Morrison. Uh, I Superman is awesome. Everything he yeah. touches is Superman. is amazing. Yeah, especially his Superman. His Batman is great, and yeah. I love his Batman run, but his Superman is just the most yeah. iconic representation of the character ever. Well, I feel like Superman is just a really hard character to write well, because it's just too easy to fix everything right. too quickly. I mean, Superman doesn't have flaws. That's why he's Superman. Right. And so, but I mean, you know, you said, Alex, you said you said this in, when you in your uh, blog review of All Star Superman. Um, you know that the way the best Grant Morrison gets this idea that the best thing Superman does is show a mirror on humanity about what they're capable of. Right. Super, Bat, if Batman is humanity striving to be better, Superman is humanity where it can be. Yeah. Uh, and I could talk about All-Star Superman all day. Yeah. We're just going to sidestep that so that we don't get sit here forever. Uh, but Action Comics kind of takes some of that charm. There are some issues in the series uh, in which it's a very small scale. He's trying to get his cape back because the government's taken it. And then a small child ends up with it somehow. And he ends up saving this child from you know, a life of poverty instead of just getting his cape back. He, you know, everything he does gets bigger, uh, and somehow he saves somebody with everything he does. 
And then it all it goes all the way to the other end of things where Morrison's actually wrapping up the series with the invasion by the fifth dimension. And who would have thought that uh, Mr. Mixelplick, yeah, I guess that's how you pronounce it, would be an interesting villain. But Grant Morrison is just wacky and LSD-fueled enough to make it happen. Um, so if you read my review of Action Comics 14, um, I kind of compared it to a one-and-done uh, Doctor Who adventure. Superman goes to Mars, fights some angels, fights some sentient machinery, and does some cool stuff along the way. Um, and then things get crazy. And I actually was a little little critical of the ending because I thought it was just too, a little too rapid. Um, suddenly he saved, you know, he saved these Mars terraformers, uh, and then suddenly it looks like the devil himself is looming over him and beating him up. Um, but we find out in issue 15 that's because uh, the fifth dimension is invading Superman's life at different points in his life and twisting the timeline and pulling it all together and trying to pull it apart basically is all a big prank. Um, but we find out in the backup issue, backup story uh, by, um, and I always get her name wrong, Molly Folch. I believe that might be incorrect. I apologize, Molly, if it is. Um, that I'm sure she's listening. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, I'm so Make sure to send us lots of hate mail about getting that one right, wrong. <laughs> like every other <laughs> good podcast on the planet. If, if we get hate mail, we know people are listening. Exactly. Maybe I did that on purpose. Uh, anyway, that was silly. Um, this, they've turned Missile Flick into a bit more tragic figure, um, and we actually probably learn more about him than I ever knew. It's not a character I'm well-versed in at all. I always thought he was kind of silly. But again, it goes back to Superman works best when things are just out of the box and out of control. You're right. He can fix anything physically. He can punch anything harder. He can fly faster. He can lift more. But when when you're messing with time itself and his perception of reality, there's not a lot he can do. Right. Um, so in a way, he, he makes Superman powerless here. Uh, and it's really hard to sum up issue 15 because, like I, like we said before, Grant Morrison doesn't do one-and-done issues. 14 is as close as he comes. Um, everything is interwoven. So you can read 15, and you kind of needed to read all the way back to 10. Right. Um, but it's worth it. Right? That said, that almost makes it, if you're a new reader to a series like this, it makes it easier for you to, that it's been a short series. Absolutely. You know, there, this will be, what, maybe three trades? Yeah. Yeah. That's, not one, that's one omnibus if, we, if they do those. Yeah. Um, but uh, the art is actually a little bit of a misstep here. I like Rags Morales, who really came on the scene with Identity Crisis. Yeah. How, how dare you say something negative about Rags no, Morales? No, he, he does really well in the quiet moments, but sometimes his action gets a little disjointed. I can see that. Um, there's a couple of times, especially on the cover to uh, 14, where Superman's kind of doing a tits and ass pose. Um, right there. there. And it, it, I doubt that was his intention, but, that's what but it happened. seems farcical. Like they're almost trying to make fun of something, which if they had been, you know, it, it made me laugh. But yeah. not in, it was not what I think he meant there. Yeah. That said, his, uh, when Superman's interacting with Lois or Jimmy or, um, you know, having a conversation, I like it. 
when he's fighting Brainiac, a little less so. Hmm. Um, but the Action Comics is, is one of the more expensive books from DC. It's three ninety nine, but you do get a backup story with that, which is a method I like. Excuse me, like I mentioned before, in uh, Molly's backup. In the Action Comics series, uh, so far we've gotten the Steel uh, run, um, which what I like here is, especially in the New 52, it introduces characters we're not seeing elsewhere. Um, Steel doesn't have an ongoing series. He's not into Justice League yet. He's not even really a hero yet. But we get to see John Henry Irons, and that's a, you know that's what backup issues should do. Justice League does the same thing when introducing Shazam uh, and exploring some of the magic of the DC Universe. Um, so I highly recommend the series. Like we said, you really can't pick, go pick it up, uh, just one issue, and get into it. Uh, but Grant Morrison ends next month with issue 16. Um, and uh, Andy Diggle and Tony Daniel, who we've, I've said I'm not a huge fan of, uh, is coming on the issue to explore the origin of Krypton. It's going to be big. Superman's even getting a new suit out of it, uh, presumably to you know for space travel. Uh, Andy Diggle is a very talented writer. I yeah. love his Daredevil run. And I liked his Thunderbolts run. Everybody liked his Thunderbolts Everybody run. Everybody on the planet likes his Thunderbolts. Um, which is impressive because he followed up Warren Ellis in that book. Which, who is also just, you know, an outstanding creator. Um, so, if you're looking to get into a Superman title, I highly recommend picking up Action Comics starting at 17 um, to get that new status quo going. If you're looking to read some great Superman stories in the meantime, uh, I know the first trade of Action Comics is already on the shelves. You can pick that up. And I highly recommend you follow up with the other ones. Um, you may even... When Man of Steel comes out in theater soon, um, or in 2013, I'm not sure when the exact date is, you may be even able to get the series on sale on Comixology. So maybe keep an eye out for that. Hey, um, free advertising. Free advertising for you guys. You should uh, reciprocate. Yes. Uh, speaking of, we can talk about Man of Steel a little more. The trailer just launched. Have you seen it yet, Phil? I have not seen it yet. I've been busy being a grad student. I understand. But it's great. I, I won't say it's great. I almost did, but I won't. Um, because I'm still unsure about Scott Snyder. I, I'm the director's seat here. But at least we know he's going to punch stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and at least we know this is going to be a bit of a new take. I'm sure some people are going to not like it. Uh, but this is, you know, this is a different take on Superman. And I think in the long run, that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's always, I think, a good idea with with movies about superheroes to have them being an interpretation of the superhero rather than attempting to just retell the you know the origin story verbatim. Yeah. I mean, I think, and I think on the DC side, that's been much more successful than necessary for some reason. Um, well, I don't, I don't know. It, it seems like it's the status quo now, but back when Iron Man one hit, that was not the status quo for Iron Man. You know, they did That's change true. the character to adapt to That's him. true. That's true. As far as being, like, just a thematic interpretation, yeah. you know, that the Batman series that, you know, Nolan did, it's an interpretation of who Batman is. Yeah. And I feel like the Man of Steel, they're just, they're really trying to replicate that. I think, I think it's you're the exactly only right. successful thing they've done in the movies in a long time. Yeah, well, let's not even mention Green Lantern. Well, you did. Well, I was that's it. We're done. Um, but no, I'm very excited about Man of Steel. I mean, even if it's awful, I'm going to be there at midnight to see right. it. 
Uh, but I, I genuinely, if nothing else comes out of it, we're going to get a new Superman story, particularly when it comes to the Kents. And we can go into that. I'll maybe go into that with a blog post later. Yeah. Well, and Henry Cavill's great. You know, if I you haven't, haven't seen, seen him anything. Much. He's great in the Tudors. Um, he's one of the better characters in that series. Um, he's been in a couple of other things. The movies he the movie he was in pretty recently is escaping me. I can't remember what it's called. It's okay, I actually it. haven't seen him in anything. Um, but he's a good actor. What has he been in? No, I'm gonna click through. We're gonna find him. Henry Cavill. Anyway, it's um, gonna drive me nuts. <laughs> Phil's Google Google googling here. Why am I? Oh, he was in Immortals. Oh, okay. one of the only good things about Immortals. He actually did not like that. This movie. Was, wasn't a huge fan of that movie. So it sucks. He was in Stardust, though. Which he was in I, Stardust. He was an awful character in Stardust. Well, I really liked that movie. So yeah. at least he has good taste there, I guess. Um, anyway, we're getting off on a tangent. Okay. Um, anyway, we'll talk more about uh, movies in general, uh, maybe in the next podcast. Maybe. Because um, obviously that's a huge part of the comics industry now. Um so what what's up next? Uh, I think what we're gonna do to close out, we're gonna we're just gonna do a, a couple of previews. Um, you know, both Marvel now and the New Fifty Two have a couple of new titles coming out next month, um, as well as some some shakeups coming in the creator world. Um, so we'll start on the Marvel now side. There's definitely two books that I'm really excited about that are starting up so much so that I'm 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 desperately trying to make room for them <laughs> in my pull list. Um, they're, Uncanny X-Force is finishing up right now. The Remender Run is finishing up. I'll be doing a, probably two, a two-part feature on Uncanny X-Force coming up. Um, and it's, it's been, it's the book that got me back into comics. It's a, it's going to be very, very hard to follow Remender's work on it because it's a, it's a study on, in characters who, um, I guess the best way to describe it is that the Uncanny X-Force up till now has been about characters that kill you know, for the greater good and how they deal with that. It's really a, a study in superhero morality. It is. Well, they're not – it doesn't feel like a superhero book. It that's really, true. really does Well, and that's kind of I mean, true of all the best X-Men stories. Yeah. The X-Men are a little self It's more about – I mean, it's, it's really – they don't feel like super – they're people – yes, they have superpowers, but it's more about – how, how, how we handle big moral and social questions. And I'm a sociologist, for people that don't <laughs> know, so I love that. Um, so I don't really – there's not a whole lot of information on what the plot is actually going to be in, a, in the new Uncanny X-Force launch that's coming. Um, based on what's happening right now uh, with the Final Execution Saga – which we, I think we finally figured out what the final execution is yeah. in the last book. Um, Wolverine is going off of the book, and it makes complete sense. He, he, there's no conceivable way, given yeah. the way this book, book is ending, that uh, Wolverine could stay with Uncanny X-Force and continue to do things the way he's always done them. I think Remender um, has, has really managed to fundamentally change Wolverine's character in the book. Which is... Which is Remender's Wolverine is the only Wolverine right. I like. 
that is it's quite a feat to say that he's actually made a lasting impact on Wolverine's personality. Yeah. But he makes it I don't think it's pop gonna be possible to write Wolverine the same way for people. Unless you just completely ignore continuity. Well there is Savage Wolverine. Which makes no sense. So. But we don't we're not gonna talk about that because we don't <laughs> talk about books we're not excited about. Um but with the new new books coming out, Psylocke is going to be in charge. Um, her character has undergone undergone a tremendous amount of growth and tragedy and just awful things happening to her. Yeah, Rimini um, during this book, he's health. put her through the ringer. I mean, she's lost lost her boyfriend because she had to take care of it. Um, yeah, don't spo- don't spoil everything. I mean, really, you guys need to you know, know, read that. Many, I mean, if you can think of a conceivable bad thing that could happen to a person, it's basically happened to Psylocke in this series. But out of it, she's really grown as a character into somebody who struggles strongly with the morality of killing and isn't willing to just say the, me- the means justify the end. She's just what not. X-Force was all about. Which is what she's – and so it's going to be very interesting to see her taking on the darkest parts of the Marvel Universe with her new team. Which has my favorite thing about this book, which is Mohawk Storm. Mohawk Storm is back. I'm not really sure how she gets on the book. I'm not either, but Mohawk Storm. But Mohawk Storm is back. I mean, I'm sh- there will be some explanation. Um, there's some other characters. There's a new character called Cluster. Who looks like a female version of Phantom X, and I'm sure we'll get some explanation of that in the next issue, the last issue of um, this run of Uncanny X-Force. Um, and then Puck from Alpha Flight, who I literally know nothing about, but the way Reminder's described him and a couple of others, he's kind of the Indiana Jones of the Marvel Universe. And um, then I think the most interesting part of this team is, is Spiral. Oh, yeah. Who, if you remember in continuity, is the character who transferred Psylocke's body with Rosanchi. Hence, Psylocke is an Asian assassin with purple, or hair. With a purple hair and an English accent. Um, so, Psylocke, Spiral was really responsible for one of the first huge traumatic events in uh, Psylocke's life. Um, and so it's going to be interesting to see what kind of circumstances could actually put them on the same team. Yeah. And then in the first issue, they'll in the first arc rather, they will be chasing down Bishop, who is somehow back in in the Marvel universe proper. Uh, the last time we saw him, he was desperately trying to kill Hope and got lost far, far in the future, pretty much forever, if I if I can remember. Yeah, but it's time travel. It is time travel, so we had no idea. But the basic premise of this is that I think it's, at least I think what the pr- premise of this book is, is Psylocke is taking the concept of X-Force, which was t- is to handle the jobs that are too dirty for the X-Men proper to handle them. And she's trying to deal with them in a better way. So Yeah, I think that's the, yeah. Also, the female characters have pants. Oh, yes, Psylocke <laughs> wears pants. That's so, great. That's a step forward. Oh my gosh, that's that's it's a good it's good. Um, now if only Wonder Woman can get some pants. Oh, Wonder Woman does need pants. Yeah, I think it's going to be. Um, and the other book you're excited sorry, about. wow, you really just wrecked my train of thought. Sorry. Um, the other book I'm excited about is Uncanny X Men. I'm just excited about all things Uncanny. <laughs> um, but sir, the reason I'm excited about this book, I was not sold at all on Bendis's. Um, Taking over the X Men, not not in the least. Um, 
However, I've been really impressed with what I've seen out of all new X-Men. I think each issue has actually been better than the one before it. Um, and in all new X-Men number three, he does a really good job of convincing convincing me that I want to pay attention to what's happening with Cyclops, Magneto, Magic, yeah. and Emma Frost. And they are as dysfunctional a group as you can possibly imagine. They have nothing in common with one another and no common ground except that they're all in very bad situations with the rest of the Marvel U and don't really have any choice except to turn to one another. And that is just a great premise for a book, especially an X book. I think this, the, what Bendis is doing with Cyclops is a really interesting character examination and what does a man do um, when everything he's dreamt about doing for the world he's he can't do legitimately anymore. When you've screwed up completely so that you can't be allowed back in, you know, how do you how do you keep going? Yeah. You know, when you fall from grace as magnificently as Cyclops has has fallen, how do you how do you attempt to do the right thing? You know, are you even allowed to do the right thing? And so I think that's a really interesting premise and it's interesting that Magneto is going to be coming along with them. It's interesting that Emma Frost is there. Um, Magic, I mean... But everybody on that team has been a villain. Yeah, every single person on the team has been, has been a villain. Um, and so it'll, it'll be really interesting to see where that book goes. Um, and so I'm, I'm really interested in paying attention to it. Uh, those are the two I'm really interested in. Um, there's a lot of other stuff out there. Um, well, as far I, as Marvel goes, I know I am at least I am I am definitely picking up New Avengers. That's right. Uh, which is Don, Jonathan Hickman's uh, sister book to the Avengers proper, uh, which it brings back the Illuminati. Uh, each yeah. member of this team has an Infinity Gem, uh, as as the Illuminati does, and you know it's going to be a really interesting Black Panther and Namor play off of mm-hmm. each other, considering Namor's realm much of Wakanda. Um, but something brings this cast together. It's Captain America, Black Panther, Namor, Doctor Strange, Beast, and Black Bolt. Um, and Iron Man. Iron Man. Uh, it brings these guys in a way that Hickman has described as the biggest thing in the Marvel Universe. He said, according to Hickman, this is the most important book in Marvel. Yeah. Uh, this is his dream book. This is the book he's always wanted to write. Um, and when Hickman's saying stuff like that, I don't think he's going to yeah. Well, I mean, to me, it seems like he's playing with a lot of the same ideas in this book that he's playing with in Manhattan Project. Right. Which is, you've got a whole group of really big, important minds, really big, important players in the world. With the biggest the universe, egos possible. With the biggest egos possible. They all have their own motivations, and none of their motivations are noble for working with one another. I think we can just assume that. Yeah. But they're brought together because they're basically the only people that can deal with this threat. Universe, mul- multiple universe-shattering threats. Right. And, uh, and it's going to tie in with Avengers, and we don't know an awful lot about it, but uh, I'm genuinely excited. Yeah. Uh, I'm also going to pick up at least issue one of Nova and Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, the cosmic side of the Marvel Universe is going to be big again, which is exciting. However, Jeff Loeb and Brian Michael Bendis are writing the two flagship books, uh, and Historically, I have not been a fan of either uh, yeah. very much. Uh, the all-new X-Men stuff is very promising. But all-new X-Men has impressed me, uh, not quite as much as this impressed Phil. Yeah. 
Um, so I'll definitely be giving Guardians of the Galaxy a big chance, and I'm gonna, uh, even though I'm less, I'm less hopeful for for Nova, I want to like it um, because I loved the Nova series uh, way back when. I loved the Guardians of the Galaxy series way back when, and I think um, Guardians of the Galaxy is definitely what uh, the closest we're gonna see to what we're gonna get out of the movie. Yeah. Um, coming in 2013, 2014? Yeah. Um, so, and, and they're bringing the Cosmic Side back in a big way. Iron Man's joining the cast of Guardians of the Galaxy. And it's There'll be some version of Iron Man. It, it's Tony Stark. It is Tony Stark. That's yeah. confirmed. And, and, and the solicitation for issue number one, they even described them as Avengers. Hmm. Um, and they're exploring why Earth is so yeah. damn important. Every freaking body's an Avenger these days. If they're an Avenger, they're an Avenger. That's uh, that's Brevoort's thing. What do you have to be the Avenger? You have to avenge. You have to. (laughs) (laughs) But any any comic that brings Rocket Raccoon and Groot back, I've got to give it a shot. Right. Uh, And Nova's supposed to tie in very closely. I think issue number two of Nova even stars the Guardians of the Galaxy in it. Uh, And honestly, more than anything, I'm curious to see why the Nova Force is back at all. Yeah. Uh, And why Star Lord is back at all, considering they collapsed from the Cancerverse to Thanos. Uh, yeah, it was pretty final. The, yeah, it was, it was very final. The universe collapsed. Well, Thanos is back. But Thanos came for back no Avengers Assemble for like he was never gone. Which I, I still don't get Avengers Assemble. Well, they turned it now into a, a ongoing team book. That yeah, but fun. how does it but like, before but how does it actually no tie idea. into the rest of the I have cinema? no idea. It okay. was supposed to be out of continuity and then it was suddenly in continuity and then Thanos suddenly appeared and then the Guardians of the Galaxy suddenly appeared. Even though half the cast is dead, Drax was supposed to be dead. I have no idea how how all this is coming back. I don't know if they're going to address Phoenix it. Force. That very well may be it. <laughs> but the nerd in me has got. I'm telling you, the energy of the Phoenix Force being distra- destroyed undid the cancer universe and brought everybody back. Then where's uh, Richard Ryder? I don't know. Where's I'm old Buckethead? I need him back. I don't know. Look, look. Well, it's well, all timey whiny. <laughs> <laughs> whatever. Yeah, I'll definitely be get picking up both of those, and I will uh, I will not be gentle because I need them to be good. Um, so that'll be one book. If we're, if I don't like it, you guys will know. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. Um, so is that is that it? That's it for Marvel. Uh, well, DC. We're gonna talk a little bit about a little bit about DC. Yeah. Um, nothing. Uh, Death of the Family still going. I think it wraps up in March. Um, the big so still early on enough to jump on with that. Oh yeah, absolutely. You're only one issue behind. Yeah, jump on now, and you can ride it with us. Um, the, but coming up is going to be an Aquaman Justice League crossover, uh, which I'm very interested to see. Throne of Atlantis. Um, mm-hmm. Atlantis invades. Justice League fights it. They may fail. Um, Aquaman has become a Huge character in the issue this week. Jeff Johns has turned him into yeah. a superstar. I think we actually talked about, um, not as part of this podcast, obviously, because it's already gone over two hours. Yeah. But doing a, a draft with, you know, Aquaman as the leader. Yeah. Or something similar like that. Some similar, completely B list character uh, being the leader of the Justice League. And, and he's really not like B list anymore, though. He really he's, isn't. He's, uh, everybody in the Justice League is a big character. Um, and almost everybody has their own book that's good, with the exception of Cyborg, and that bugs the hell out of me. Yeah, we already talked about that once this podcast. I know, but Cyborg deserves a book, uh, just like I thought Martian Manhunter always deserved a book. Well, you know, maybe Vibe will get to it. Oh, Vibe. 
Uh, on that front, uh, Martian Manhunter is kind of getting a book, along with Vibe. Justice League of America launches in mm. early February with 52 variant covers, one for each state. Oh, my God. Washington, D.C., and Puerto Rico. Uh, it's the most ridiculous variant stunt ever. Is uh, Deadpool in it? <laughs> no, but Deadpool's in Marvel's spoof of it. There's a 52 State Birds uh, Marvel variant for some issue. I don't even know what issue and it's Deadpool's in. Deadpool's got And be. Deadpool's getting pooped on by all the birds. And well. you know, they're making fun of Marvel. Or DC. Which is actually a little funny. But that variant covers... Actually pretty funny. Variant covers have gone too far, and DC has well, just pushed just it into the realm of... Well they're Nonsense. great. Well they're great for people who want to buy that kind of thing. Well, they're for, great for to look at. Us. I mean But do we really need a Scotty Young baby variant of every single Marvel now book? Somebody out there does. <laughs> Scotty the market Young. demands Scotty, it. Scotty Scotty Young does. The market demands it. Yeah, that's what Marvel Now is actually about. It's Scotty Young babies. The market demands more Scotty Young babies. <laughs> I, it just it it seems a little nineties ish to have so many variants run around. At least Chromium's not Look, back. Man. Stanley's got to feed all them grandchildren. But I'm actually excited about the series uh, itself. Justice League of America is Jeff Johns and David Finch. It's another superstar team. Uh, we also have Constantine hitting, which is uh, the continuation. I'm excited about that. I'm going to pick up issue one. I'm still a little sad that Hellblazer's gone because it seems like high-numbered car- comics are just extinct practically. Yeah, but seeing a Constantine book that's actually set that's actually joined to the rest of the Well, he's a huge figure in the New 52. He is. I mean, the the Justice League Dark stuff is really cool. Well, and there's, Magic is the uniting force of the DC now. Right. Uh, It just is. And And he's at the center of all of it. Yeah. So it's going to be a book to watch. I'm not sure I'll put it on my pull list uh, because I have too much. Um, But it's a book to watch. And then we also have, um, I blanked. I blank. I forgot what else I was going to talk about. <laughs> um, anyway, that's lots, awkward. Yeah. <laughs> lots of other stuff coming out of DC. It's gonna, I think coming into next year, there will be a blog post up soon about tw- how great a year 2012 has been for comics. Yeah, maybe we'll do some top tens yeah. of some sort. Top tens are fun. People like those. Everybody loves top tens. Look at me go out on it. In fact, you should email us at comic comic critique blog at gmail.com with your top ten list you'd like to see. Or comment directly on the Facebook site or on the blog itself. We'd love to talk to you. Anywhere. Just, just Yeah. Just we have a Twitter us. set up. You can tweet us. We'll tweet back at you. Um, so I think that uh, as a little disjointed ending there, uh, I think 2013 going into next year is going to be a huge for mm-hmm. comics, just like this year was. We'll talk about that more in our next podcast. Um, anything else you want to say, Phil? Yeah, uh, just a few things. Um, once again, just make sure if you if you want to to contact us um, at comiccritiqueblog at gmail dot com. I'll say that as many times as I have to. Um, things we'd really like to hear back from you about. Uh, tell us what kind of segments you want to hear. Do you want us to spend an hour and a half on reviews, or do you want us to spend more time doing quirky stuff like superhero team drafts? Um, both of which are fun. Both of which are fun, and we will be happy to talk and listen to ourselves talk doing either one. <laughs> um, would you like to see more previews? Would you like to see more news? Um, anything like that. Tell, tell us what kind of content you want to see. 
um, so that so that we can we can keep improving this thing. Um, that's yeah, there, all I've got. Yeah, there's a lot of places you can get your comics news and feedback and reviews and all that. Uh, thanks for listening to our little slice of it. Uh, we hope you enjoy it week in and week out, and um, let us know. Yeah, make sure to visit the website. Yeah, it's comiccriticsblog.wordpress.com. <laughs> make sure to include the blog in there. Yeah, that's important. Um, and other than that, uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.